This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're back for part three of our Penny Dreadful rewatch. We've started season two, episodes one to four. Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. This is TV Podcast Industries. We're watching Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episodes 1 to 4. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings or Nightcomers. Uh, I am one of your other hosts, John. And rounding up the group, I am your third host, Ray. Welcome back, Ray. Good stuff. I like I like <laughs> how, uh, someone rounding out the group again. It's always good. Yes, exactly. A triangle. Which can then become a pentagram or something <laughs> there to, to feed into this witchy kind of ness that is season two, uh, Penny Dreadful. Yeah, yeah. Cause you can't round it out a triangle, John. It's, it's mathematically impossible. <laughs> no, I know. It's, yeah, exactly. Okay. A line. Right. <laughs> well, that's we, just two. Anyway, forget it. <laughs> forget it. We're, well, we are very happy to have Ray back with us. We had the last four episodes without him, so uh, delighted to have you back for season two. Uh, did you enjoy the ending of season one? How about that? How about we start there? Oh, it's just, um, yeah, everything about this show from the first time watching it to rewatching it, it exceeds expectations again. Mm. So, no, no, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, re- really enjoying the, the rewatch as well and looking forward to season two because it's a very different beast absolutely really is and uh that this um i think i have in my notes that it's just a lot creepier in season two than season one <laughs> the idea that we're getting the story of the witches this time as opposed to last time where we got the vampires where the villains of the piece and were only seen when they were attacking our main heroes whereas this time we actually get what's going on in the minds of the, of the villains this season so yeah, I obviously tried to shut out um this this season for sure, given the creepiness of it, because uh my memory did not serve me well at all. Um there were things that I thought happened over a few episodes where it was just self-contained, such as episode three. Um I certainly didn't think the um which is one of my points later on, the dollhouse of hell mm-hmm. uh, came in it so early, uh, as well as the baby autopsy, so to speak. <laughs> um so I was just like, Oh my good God. <laughs> so yeah. we have uh rabbits rabbit feet all around the house. We have done we, we've put a sort of a, a salt all around the perimeter of the property just to make sure that we are safe. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Supernatural, for te- teaching us all of those tricks exactly. to protect our home. Yes. Without Supernatural, yeah. we would be dead. <laughs> I am a man of science. I, I kid you not, yeah. fellow uh, Darklings. Uh, I really am. But yes, this is a creepy show fest, definitely. Yeah. But I'm sure by now, even as a man of science, you could probably agree with Victor. If you've seen this much stuff happen to you in your life, you're going to agree <laughs> that a lot is able to happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Right. As we've been doing with all of our podcasts on Paddy Dreadful, we're going to kick straight into it. These are shorter podcasts. We will probably talk for a lot longer when we get to uh, season four of Paddy Dreadful, Paddy Dreadful City of Angels, when it starts coming out from April 26th. We'll probably have full hour long or more episodes about each episode of that show. But as we're doing a rewatch and as you've all seen the episodes before, we're going to just pick out our main points, the things that we're interested in talking about from each of the episodes. These episodes are being released first on Patreon. We're releasing each individual episode over there and then releasing the combined episodes on our main feed at tvpodcastindustries.com. Um, but let's get into this episode, Season 2, Episode 1, Fresh Hell. This episode was directed by James Halls. He directed some of the episodes in Season 1. Uh, also directed some episodes of the wonderful Black Mirror. Go out and check those out. He loves directing the dark TV shows, obviously. Uh, once again, starting off Season 2, showrunner John Logan is writing uh, each of the episodes this time again. It's always good having the team back together. It's kind of his vision. So uh, mm-hmm. seeing what he's taking from Season 1 and bringing into Season 2 is definitely one of the fun aspects of the show isn't it yeah you definitely get the continuity certainly in the mm-hmm. writing here um and and even with the aesthetic it, it is it's really nicely played um so yeah it's good to it's good that they had his vision for season two mm-hmm. for sure yeah i think it's so important to have such a consistency in the continuity because the things that john logan writes throughout season two some of it references season one as well and and you you don't have that kind of um integrating uh, information between the two seasons if you if you had a different showrunner or if you had different writers so the, the idea that he's got a, a vision that mm-hmm. he wants to portray and he has this kind of holistic view of how he wants to take the where he wants to take the show i think it's a, it's a really good thing it, it just ensures that there's a, a like a, a tight kind of um storytelling to it yeah, exactly. Exactly. John, do you want to tell us about the storytelling? Tell us what the summary of episode one of season two is. Sure. At the Mariners Inn, Ethan Chandler awakes from another of his blackouts to find those that threatened him are all dead. He joins Vanessa for a carriage ride to tell her about the blackouts. He has no idea what happens to him and what he normally finds when he awakens. He's decided to leave London, but before he can even finish his story, the carriage is attacked by three female creatures. Vanessa is clearly their target, but she and Ethan survive with only minor injuries. Sir Malcolm Murray returns, and she tells him the creatures spoke the Verbis Diablo, a dead language known as the Word of the Devil, which according to legend is the language Adam spoke in Eden after the devil tempted him. Vanessa says the women were nightcomers, witches. Meanwhile, Dr. Frankenstein is now ready to reanimate Brona Croft and needs only for the weather to cooperate. The creature finds a job at Putney's Family Waxworks, where the owner, Oscar Putney, is working on his latest tableau, The Mariners in Massacre. Elsewhere, Police Inspector Rusk investigates the murders at the inn. We've all had that moment where you're waiting on the weather to cooperate with your grand <laughs> master plan. Uh, not Absolutely. Usually, not usually waiting on the lightning to reanimate a corpse, though. Certainly at the moment exactly. where we are having storm after storm mm-hmm. rolling in from the Atlantic. Yes. Uh, was it Storm oh. Jorge at the moment? Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. Plenty of opportunities there to reanimate. <laughs> yeah, well, John, yeah. <laughs> if rain reanimates uh, creatures, then we would reanimate yeah. an army by now. Wind, rain, <laughs> more rain, even more wind. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's get into our big moments from the episode. John, what's your big moment from season two, episode one? 
Uh, well, I'm taking it um, really from, I suppose, where season one left off, and that is the massacre at uh, the Mariner Inn. Mm-hmm. Um, but importantly, I suppose here that there um, is a survivor. You know, we we definitely saw on the um, with the the mother and child, uh, as well as the the um, lamplighter and the lady in the park. That you know, no one survived. Um, effectively ethan's uh turn uh in the moonlight it's so and good to be able to talk about exactly being a werewolf now, um, <laughs> but in this case i suppose just because there were so many p- people getting pissed up in the inn <laughs> that uh he didn't really do quite a good job mm. of it so there is a survivor and we do learn later that it is one of the pinkerton agents who was after ethan uh mr roper mm. But I think importantly, what it comes out with this is maybe that there's a bit more focus on on Ethan, both in terms of the, the, his story, but also, um, you know, within the episodes, we have a new detective uh, on the case, uh, an Inspector Rusk, mm-hmm. who has replaced the the previous detective Goldsworthy, and um, who kind of seemed to be jaded by it. Really, there was that moment in season one where he was um, visited by some Malcolm, and it, I suppose after. The Jack the Ripper cases and just the general swigging of gin and general mayhem from the Industrial Revolution in mm-hmm. London that he kind of needs to retire at this stage. <laughs> but this this new detective, um, the Inspector Rusk, is certainly uh, keener, shall we say. He oh, yeah. seems a little more incisive in, in where this investigation is going to take him mm-hmm. um and uh, i i quite like that i mean certainly we see the survivor on the hospital bed pretty um beaten up mm-hmm. or should i say scratched up um and it, it's kind of it's one of those normal things it's that matter of time until he recovers and um you know until they can have a worthwhile conversation uh, and chat mm-hmm. you know they have a lot to talk about yeah. so um i like that but I, I think as well the focus is that you know we see that there is um the public have have taken this gory event uh, into their imagination whether it's through the newspapers the penny dreadfuls um you know it's kind of a la jack ripper um there's nothing that sells more than gore and gossip in mm-hmm. that sense and, and here um you know the focus of, of um i suppose just the public imagination and the press and um, and and to an extent we ha- we see this then through um the Putney's family waxworks were Mr. Putney, Oscar Putney wants to kind of recreate, um, the, the massacre, uh, because he sees this as his ticket to, um, increase profits to compete with that blasted, um, other waxwork house of <laughs> Madame Two Swords. Yes. Um, so we know which one, uh, sort of won out in the end. I don't, well, I don't we... think Putney's still exist, to be honest. <laughs> I was wondering, you've been to London a few times as well. Um, is this something around the London dungeon? Because we have a, a, oh, a place maybe. in London that, yeah. that is kind of the House of Horrors, yeah. which is very like, yeah. um, Madame Two Swords, but, focuses just on murders and deaths and all that kind of stuff which has been around for hundreds of years or well a hundred years as well so yeah maybe um, maybe that is if the putney family lost out and it just went to uh putney bridge is yeah maybe maybe i i don't know but certainly um maybe not quite as a recognizable brand as as madame two swords (laughs) and so yeah the 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 french flair worn out really Mm -hmm. um i suppose in that one yeah um but it, it, you know they're, they're recreating this and I, I think the other nice thing about this is that 
Caliban is inserted into um, the Putney's waxworks. And this is where he looks to get a job. This is kind mm. of his replacement for the theatre. Um, and and it, I think it marries quite well. I mean, I, I just keep thinking of the horror, The House of Wax. Mm. Um, so to me, this is kind of... This makes sense that Caliban is going to a, another kind of slightly um, kooky um, vocation mm. for for himself. He can he can work down in the basement, away from prying eyes, creating these the, these figures out out of wax. Um, we now have another name for Caliban as well. So we've mm. had Demon mm. Monster Caliban, and now it's John Clare. Yes, chosen by himself. Yeah, chosen yes. by himself. So. Just fellow Darklings, if we interchange John Clerk, Caliban, Demon, Monster, it's ultimately probably the same character. Mm -hmm. Do we know where, I mean, did I miss it, where he chose John Clare from? Was that just plucked out of nowhere or were this, was that a reference to something? It seemed to be on the spot because yeah. Um, yeah, Oscar's yeah. wife, uh, who kind of keeps the books and seems a pretty hardy soul. Um, I thought she was the one that yeah. wore the pants actually, mm -hmm. but then he, he does kind of, mm. um, he does sort of reassert his, um, shall we say his, his patriarchy on her. Uh, but certainly it seemed like it was straight off hand because he had to give yeah. her a name and she may have just laughed yeah. at Caliban. Not, not too much to talk about later episodes, but there is a moment where he says his name for the first time to Victor Frankenstein, and Frankenstein just rolls his eyes to heaven <laughs> because, you know, it's not as it's not as great a name as he would have given to his creation, no. you know, or even Proteus. Yeah. You know, Proteus's name chosen from uh, from Shakespeare was a, a great moment for Victor Frankenstein yeah. where he gets that, uh, that wonderful name for his new creation, and it's like, yeah. John, um, what's another word? Claire. Yeah. Claire. John Claire. I'll yeah. go for that. <laughs> Well, John is a great name. John is a wonderful yeah, name. Yeah, so very strong. Uh, it is a it's not overused name, at all. Though. Yeah, it's not overused at all. <laughs> I think it's I think it's fallen massively out of fashion. But anyway, not. there you very go. Very fashionable on our podcast. One third of our hosts are called John. Mm. <laughs> exactly. I, I was just thinking. I was wondering if there was like a name tag that said John, or if there was like an eclair on the desk or something. That <laughs> kind of put things together. I have like, no oh, hey, John Clare. <laughs> I think yeah. I, he just had to pluck it uh, right there. Oh. I think, but uh, I, I do think. I and I wonder if um, because Ethan does also take note of this new. Um, exhibition that is going to take place at the Putney's uh, Family Waxworks. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder to what extent Caliban will become more integral to that company uh, of Sir Malcolm. Mm. Um, certainly because as well, uh, we do see Caliban meeting Vanessa as well in another one of the episodes. I know it's yeah, episode yeah. two, but <laughs> we'll um, it, yeah. yeah, but it, it, it's, yeah. he seems like there's a few more possible connections here mm -hmm. uh, to this company, not just through Victor, where he, he might become a, a part of, of Sir Malcolm's band of Merry Misfits. Um, so the reason why I brought this up is, is mainly because I suppose the point of view from Ethan, it, it's changed from season one and we are starting to see him as part of uh, the storyline in the same way as you described the witches as opposed to the vampire. Yeah. You know, it, it's not yeah. a sort of peripheral transient element it, it, it's becoming more and um, sort of in, interjected into the story which i think is a good thing because he's done this massacre and there has to be some kind of consequence and i i, I think yeah. that the urgency of the new inspector also seems nice you know he yeah. is 
absolutely focused on getting whoever has done this and i kind of like that yeah and and you know i suppose it's really important for the ethan character in season one and the previous parts we talked about the fact that ethan was the voice of the viewer he was the eyes of the viewer excuse me throughout the series and didn't have much of his own storyline as you would expect for one of the three major characters of the show or the four major characters of the show um towards the end of the season it starts to build up to this idea that he is uh this werewolf that can eventually just come out and kill everything around him um what i did like about how this was introduced is remember there was only two people in that room that Ethan wanted to actually kill which were the Pinkertons that were after them and one of them still alive so he's not a very effective weapon as such you know (laughs) he has killed everybody in that room except for one of the only two people that can identify him so uh, so I suppose he's not in control is what it tells you about uh, about the werewolf he's he is able to turn into this uh, this creature this beast but unlike the vampires or unlike the witches He's, he's out of control. He's slaughtering everything around him, but not getting the one thing that he wanted to get. So. Yeah, he, he's, um, I think, and you see that with his reactions and the way he, he talks to Vanessa in the carriage as well about how he's got no control, how he's got these inner demons himself. And, mm. and he's, to a point, I mean, just as scared as everyone else uh, who's, you know, walking around London with these murders happening around. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very much so. Very much I liken him to... You know, say like the Incredible Hulk or, or Doctor mm-hmm. Jekyll and Mister Hyde, how this other physical being where he blacks out and he's yeah. it's a totally different entity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I mean, just going further to your point as well, uh, the the wolf is totally out of the bag now from season one. You know, yeah. so I think the only way to progress Ethan as a character would be to okay establish that, which they did, which John Logan did perfectly mm-hmm. in the end of season one, and then okay, so where do we take it now? And so I, I think it's really great. You have this added dynamic of in, Inspector Rusk with mm-hmm, this yeah. kind of uh, forensic investigation now, which is, is a different part of, of of the Penny Dreadful storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's very interesting. He's a very interesting character, a very intense yeah. kind of guy. He is. <laughs> very. Yeah. But he, he's very good as well. And and tying it also with the horror elements, um, even just, just the verbal descriptions of this guy hasn't got much of a face anymore. Mm-hmm. and. You know, he won't be able to talk to you till maybe tomorrow because he's so disfigured. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeing all the bandages, that itself has a very horror element to it and a very kind of, oh, I don't know if I can, yeah. you know, yeah. what is under it? What, what is under those bandages? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unlike the, cool. unlike the picture of Dorian Gray, I actually don't want to see what's under those bandages, <laughs> yeah. I must admit. I, I think one of the interesting things of Rusk as well is that, um, he has that conversation with, I think, the owner of the inn who wants to kind of sell it off as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they want to put up tenements and he just goes more brick um soon there will be no wooden buildings left you know wood has its character and tells a story mm-hmm. and it seems like he also has this kind of longing for dare i say the old ways not to say that he's su- he's a a supernatural being or he's got any elements like that certainly i don't get that at the moment i think no. he's very much about as you say that this modern um detective um using the latest tools available to him mm-hmm. uh sort of in victorian britain but um there's there's some kind of thing that he, he still looks back or he you know his terms of reference are still 
as as a kid, you know, the old ways okay. uh, to some extent. The, or there's a there's a nostalgia there to that way, and yeah. um, that even though he's bought in to because um, he you know he he says that he has come from the army. It looks he he used to be a, a soldier, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, he, he's bought into new technologies like repeater rifles or all this kind of stuff. But there's there's something there that he may be a bit more open to um, the possibility of what happened in the Mariners Inn rather than just simply a straightforward um, serial killer like I think Detective Goldsworthy would have been thinking. Right, right. I just took it that he had this concept of uh, of Wood leaving behind something for him to investigate. So yeah. he's a forensic detective, so yeah. Brick doesn't have the same kind of investigative abilities for him, I suppose. But I think he's more open. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Just quickly as well with that point, I, I love it as well. It's a good point, John. Um, but it's also, for me, it was more like a nostalgia within the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so we're watching this and everything's so, so dated, so yeah. outdated. And he's coming in and he's saying, oh, Brick, that's <laughs> yeah. so new and modern, you know. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they using the, the tried and true method of, of timber? And so we're, we're thinking, wow, this is he's really got the old traditional ways. Yeah. yeah so I, I love that layer of, um, of us being kind of detached even further mm-hmm. from him because he is so set in, in a traditional sense whilst we are way modern. So, Absolutely. yeah, where's the steel and glass? Exactly, exactly. Mm. <laughs> well, let's move on to our next big point for the episode. Ray, do you want to kick us off with your one? Yeah, um, look, I took a big juicy one here. I, uh, <laughs> I went for the, the introduction of the new big bads, the, the witches. I call them in the notes the witches' coven. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's obviously a group of them. We get the introduction to them not only uh, visually, aesthetically, which is Truly terrifying, and the way they move is all very um, supernatural. But we get a bit more of the back, a little bit more, sorry, of the back history to them, mm-hmm. um, and establishing them. I guess they're, they're established a little bit more than um, than what the vampires were initially in in season one. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different take. Um, I was about to mention also as well between season one and season two, there's always uh, a risk of not living up to the the standards of the first season because, you know, generally they'll pick the best villain, you Absolutely. know, and it'd be the vampires. So how can we top that? Mm-hmm. And and I feel they're, they're doing a really good job um, in season one in establishing the, the witches because, number one, they just look as scary as hell. Absolutely. Um, they're talking <laughs> yeah. in a devil tongue in the Verbus Diablo. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the interaction with Vanessa. So, again, there's an immediate connection. I love that bit where she, similar to season one, where she stands down that creature. Mm-hmm. She starts speaking in the Verbus Diablo and she freaks out one of the witches. Yeah. And so they, they kind of leave. So it's again, what is this mystery with Vanessa? What, mm-hmm. you know, how is she connected with, with them? Um, I, yeah. So it's, it's basically that as well as later on in the episode, we get introduced to how should we call her? I mean, Madame Carly, she mm-hmm. was in, in the first season. Yeah. Um, she's referenced as Mrs. Paul. Yeah. Now, but she's definitely like the head of the, the witch's yeah. coven, it seems. Uh, the introduction of her in, in that bloodbath, um, uh, <laughs> with the, the dead, I don't know, would have been maybe her daughter or, or some sacrifice or offering mm-hmm. in the, in the front. Again, really does set the tone for these. I mean, yeah. Looking at it. And and in that scene with her and her daughters, mm-hmm. um, 
they are really, 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 really evil. They really yeah. absolutely are, yeah. Like, they really do set a more um, yeah. sinister tone with the, you know, the gothic villa. Um, as you say, the bathing in blood of, mm-hmm. of a victim uh, and also mm-hmm. the the fireplace made with with bones or or, or the yeah. bone decorations the skeleton decorations mm-hmm. um it, yeah it's really weird it's funny uh derek and i went to rome and we went into a capuchin church in, in rome where they also made literally everything in mm-hmm. in the crypt out of bones um, where it was like the altars were made out of bones, the light sockets were all the decoration, uh, the, the ceiling freezes, and it was just like, so, okay, these are witches one step removed from yeah. monks, effectively, yeah. uh, or the Capuchin <laughs> monk order. Um, and they're made, they're made of the bones of former Capuchin monks. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's what happens to well, you when you die, we'll make an altar out of you kind of thing. I don't know whether I'd sign up for that. Religion. And it's, it's kind of that thing, I suppose. You know, you, you kind of think, oh my goodness, this is so, um, this is so outrageous, maybe, or you go, um, this, this is, you know, someone's taking this too far. And mm-hmm. yet in, in the real world, fellow darklings, um, and, uh, penny faithful, uh, there are places where this kind of stuff is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about it. Um, which is most creepy is that it's, it's not, um, too far too far from from reality um i think as well helen mccrory um i just love her in in this season the the power that she exudes as this head witch is is just uh fantastic Mm -hmm. and i do like her little sort of deadly ring uh that she puts to use on yeah, her yeah. failed daughter mm-hmm. um uh certainly that's that that's pretty cool i think they've all got them probably but uh yeah it's a fairly uh kind of almost like an assassin's weapon yeah um yeah, yeah. you know she she she's kind of this beautiful um flower that sort of distracts you and then the sting of the thorn comes out with a a wave of the hand uh yeah. it is really really nice I, um, I truly get the feeling that after seeing her performance as madame Callie in episode two of uh of season one they kind of went if we get a second season she's going to become a major character because there's only one more scene that we see that character in and it's it's at the end of uh, at the end of season 1 where she meets Malcolm and introduces herself again as Evelyn Poole and that the whole Madame Callie persona is just something that she does to earn a bit a little bit of cash because that's what people expect from her kind of thing um but actually Evelyn Poole has a much deeper and more rich history of this show so uh, introducing her at the mm. start of season 2 as being a much more evil character than we had possibly expected from that little bit of interaction we knew there was something sinister about her when she introduced herself to malcolm in that um supposedly uh chance encounter that she had with him in season one because <laughs> she kind of looks after him going i'll see you again kind of thing so yeah, um, so nice yeah. how they've built her into this character yeah um i i think what's kind of good as well is there's all you you know you get that sense of the connection and i I do like the fact that vanessa's like genuinely a little freaked out Mm -hmm. by the the sense that she is getting you know she gets in the park where you see madame carly sort of directing enchantments towards her um and you know she she's frightened um and uh 
I, I like that conversation that she has with Sembene, uh, where she asks, do you believe that the past can return? And he just is like, I believe it never leaves us. It's who we are. And of course, we see that in episode three, then just that connection. And um, I suppose with this coven, although she doesn't know that yet. Um, so I, I like the fact that this is kind of really uh, freaked her out mm-hmm. uh, from her past mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of, you know, it's reignited her being able to speak the um, Verbis Diablo as well. Um, that it, It's kind of almost taking control of her a bit. All these things are kind of automatically kind of coming out from mm-hmm. her. And I, I think in the carriage, it kind of startles one of those nightcomers as well, um, where they... Mm. They're like, oh, she's speaking to us. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, finally, I can have a conversation in my own tongue <laughs> uh, without not just with my sisters kind of thing. <laughs> Want to go for a coffee, Vanessa? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. And and also as well the the tying in with with the religion as well mm-hmm. to give in a, a bit of ground uh, to grounding it a little yeah. in the sense that um, I love the the fact that you see the witches with the, is it the devil's claw the marks of the devil on them mm-hmm. as well yeah. Yeah. and so that ties in with with Satan mm-hmm. um, and and also the yeah, the verbus diablo which was a, a corruption of the angelic speech so it, it all talks about that and links it to you know the angels and devils yeah. um yeah. is is very cool indeed um at the at the end and it, we also know that you know they are witches and they do dabble in stuff but they're not just like um stirring a cauldron and mm-hmm. and uh, and cackling away there's a lot more to them and and they serve a master right and so we we're, we're getting a sense yeah. of a, an even more evil master even more so than you know in season 1 this is mm-hmm. like lucifer himself this is the devil so you can't get any more uh, evil than that absolutely the, there is part of me that wishes they were just stirring a cauldron to be honest because yeah they they are a kind of um level 11 in terms of freakishness mm-hmm. um for sure yeah on the verbus diablo as well ray i like i really like the end of this episode where mm. you have vanessa praying in latin to the cross mm-hmm. with the candles um as she's kind of thumbing a, a bloody scorpion sort of image on the floor mm-hmm. um and sort of counter to that you have uh madam carly or or Evelyn Poole, um, giving her own prayer to Lucifer as opposed to God in the Verbus Diablo. I thought mm-hmm. that was uh, really nice touch. You got the sense that somewhere, probably over Hyde Park, that these this mystical energy was battling in terms of the force of their prayers or something. Oh, I, think, yeah. I thought okay. that was quite good. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest as well, I had to smirk a little at Evelyn Poole when she was chanting mm-hmm. um just when her eyes kind of rolled back and she kind of went cross-eyed mm-hmm. uh, it did to me it looked a little funny <laughs> it kind of broke the tension a little um I but i mean of course you know the effect the overall effect was there yeah. and what she was doing and a very great a, a good ending as well mm-hmm. similar 
Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I will say about the carriage scene, and similar to yourself, right? There's a, there's a moment when um, when Ethan and uh, Vanessa are having their conversation in the carriage, and they hop in and they go for a drive around the city of uh, of London. Um, as we talked about before, this is filmed in Dublin, mostly in Dublin Castle, which is a very small cobbled area of Dublin. And I was kind of wondering what are they going to do here because they can't go very far because you know it's only like you know a small square in in the center of the city that has a couple streets. So I was looking at the back. Honestly, I was a little bit distracted. I was looking at the back while they were having this conversation oh. and I was going oh they're going to they're going to do that green screeny thing where they have some background streets of London projected in the background as the carriage is going on so because of that when the attack happened I did jump quite a quite a sizably off the couch when the attack <laughs> happened because I wasn't prepared for it at all I thought this was going to be an exposition scene to set up season one, season two as the witches attack destroy the carriage and then we have that scene afterwards where there's where they get outside and see the slaughtered horse and slaughtered driver on the ground it was shocking and yeah. fantastically done to just be distracted by a moment of exposition and then have the, the slaughter going on outside. Really good. And they, they also, um, the, the Nightcomers have the reverse Jim Carrey, um, superpower from Bruce Almighty, <laughs> where instead of sort of going back and getting undressed, mm-hmm. they actually can wear anything they want. Um, so <laughs> yeah. they, they start off naked and their mm-hmm. clothes kind of form around them. Oh, like, nice. yeah. I like it. I, I also like they can kind of appear however they want to. I think that's a really cool, uh, really cool mm, superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's close out with uh, the big moments for season two, episode one, with probably another one of the biggest moments from the episode. There's actually three main points, which just really works well for these episodes where there's three of us on board. Because uh, the final big moment is Victor bringing back Brona. Um, you know, Brona is one of the characters that we all loved in season one. I think I can easily say that she's a, a great character, uh, played by Billy Piper, uh, with a very tragic story as she, as she dies at the end or is murdered by Victor to be brought back for, to fulfill his promise to Caliban of, of creating his bride. Um, what I love about this is the twist in it, which is that Victor is possibly not bringing her back for Caliban. He is possibly bringing him, her back for himself in some ways. There are some very creepy moments as he talks to the corpse Ugh. of Rona, saying, I'm going to really miss these conversations that I'm having. Um, this is not a dialogue. Yes. It's a bit of a monologue from you, Victor, talking to the dead body <laughs> yeah. of a victim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some very creepy t- moments as he as he touches her body, as he's uh, waiting yeah. for the time when the weather's going to be right to bring her back alive. Um I guess we're going to be sending these two characters on a collision course, Victor and uh, and Caliban, uh, over the heart of uh, of Brona, I suppose, as we uh, as we go on through these episodes, because um, it seems like he may not want to give her up. Um, I think there's a mention in season one from uh, from one of the characters, Vanessa, I think, mentions that she thinks that he's uh, he's a virgin, that he's uh, never had a lover before, and in this season, it feels like he is kind of transferring that. Uh, emotion a little bit towards this um, innate body that isn't able to have have any kind of dialogue with him that is only there to serve whatever purpose he is trying to put into it, I suppose. Is that a way to, to describe it? He just seems very, very creepy about this relationship he's yeah. having with the corpse. Um, but it is quite a big moment. I mean, and just the fact as well that he's the one that killed killed her, mm-hmm. like yeah. Brian Croft, and so he's found this attraction in her dead corpse now. Yeah, and, and and I guess it's that power thing as well of he's actually bringing her back. So that might be all kind of wrapped around this idea of this infatuation with her, and mm-hmm. and also this opportunity for him 
to explore this side as you as you mentioned he is a virgin and uh he has this kind of budding attraction towards her mm-hmm. uh, but very oh, i'll put it in his notes as well very very creepy yeah. indeed uh, yeah. it's a very i don't know it's a it's a a little bit of a swerve for his character. He's always been a little um, unstable, like in, in yeah. season one, uh, but this kind of really takes it further. Very much so, very much yeah. so. I think, I think the character is probably described as someone that um, has more time for the dead than the living. He, he, he mm. enjoys his time about, uh, around the dead uh, creatures and the science that he works on rather than his time around explaining it to people who don't understand uh, what he's what mm. he's involved in. But uh, yeah, definitely taking a bigger step for uh, for Victor in season two. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of... I. I can't see it ending well between Bruna and uh, Caliban um, at all, to be honest. I, I think um, the, the, there's something there where Caliban thinks that this is being done for him, and I'm not entirely sure that Victor is wanting to do it for him. You know, their, their relationship is rocky mm. anyway. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that kind of progresses, uh, to be honest. Again, I think, you know, I, I, I like the kind of, the fact that Caliban says good night creator, you know, to the, again, the man of science, mm-hmm. uh, and not wholly so, but, um, I, I find that really quite interesting. Um, and of course we see that he has actually changed or updated his process. So she is now in a water bath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and we, you know, we, we learn a little later that this is to reduce the effects of the electricity mm-hmm. um, so that they can recover quicker. Yeah. Um, because when, you know, the lightning comes and the, the storm finally arrives, um, I, I find that really kind of great moment. It's really energetic. It really kind of mirrors the idea of lightning uh, with the two of them rushing around to get all the connectors done mm-hmm. um, that lightning in a bottle element. Um, and then she begins to uh, sort of, get reanimated and sort of rises out of, of the water a bit like um almost like the the lady in the lake a bit uh, in that sense from king arthur but um i i just thought this was really nice um and and the urgency of caliban saying let her live you know that hit yeah. shouting up at the sky mm-hmm. um that this you know he's pinning all his hopes on brona and and assuming that she will have affection for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, um, even without the interjection of Victor, um, that could end badly um, if she has no feelings towards him. But th- there's something suspicious around Victor, certainly with his pre-animation sort of uh, behavior around mm-hmm. uh, Brona to suggest that, yes, he's doing it. It looks like he's helping Caliban because otherwise he'll be killed or people he love will be but he's not totally on board with helping out his yeah. first creation yeah yeah i found there there to be a little um a little murky as you're mentioning there john because it isn't as clear cut as you as you mentioned as well um it was funny i was thinking as you were as you were um recounting it uh, yeah he did have those monologues with the um with Brona's corpse while she was in there mm-hmm. but at the same time he he does ask caliban John Clare, you know, if I do this for you, will you, you know, does that release me from your, you know, your constant talking? So mm. it, it seemed like he really wants to do it for, for Caliban yeah. to, to kind of get him off his back. But at the same time, 
he's kind of doing it for himself. So there's a yeah. little bit of conflict there. Exactly. Um, and it's which one, I mean, obviously, the, the latter is, is more important to him mm-hmm. because he kind of pursues that. But, yeah. um, I found that a little, it's like, I was a little confused then because, mm-hmm. and I loved, um, Caliban's response to that as well, saying, um, you know, you might as well ask, you know, can you get your soul ripped apart from you or something? Yeah, you know, we're yeah. all bound on the same wheel of pain. Yeah. I love that. I love the language that they yeah. use with each other. It, mm-hmm. it really rings true to their characters because they're both very, um, poetic and, and very artistic uh, in that sense. Yeah. And, and going back to that point, it's, it's hilarious that, yeah, John did pick, um, John Clare as his name because mm-hmm. he's so well read, you, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and he loves, and that's all he can come up, it can come up with is, yeah. is, is a little funny. Yeah. But yeah, um, I found that thing with Victor, there were two conflicting things there. Uh, I think John Logan's done well to, to kind of balance it, but like in retrospect, thinking about it, it does potentially conflict with each other. Yeah, thoughts of Victor. It's almost like Victor wants to do it and get it done, so he gets Caliban off his back. But he certainly doesn't yeah. want to make it easy for Caliban um, with Brona. It's almost that kind of. It's like a spiteful. Mm. It's like I've done it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, right now she's yours. Um, good luck with that kind of thing. But I do um, think Caliban's response probably does influence that. As you, as you say, Caliban responding saying. What would Frankenstein be without his monster? I'll be here and I'll always be close no matter what you do for me yeah. kind of thing. Like if he'd said, you know, I'll, I'll create your bride. You can take her and off you go to, off we're going to go to Spain and we'll leave you alone. <laughs> maybe Victor Frankenstein would kind of go, actually, maybe I have an impetus to do this now, but all that's going to happen is they're going to be living down the road looking in on them every day. That's not great. Yeah. Why, why Spain? I don't know. I was like, ye oldie Costa del Sol? <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually think Ethan said that that's where he was going to go, didn't he? Is that one of the places he said he was going yes, to go to Spain and then right. to yeah. Romania, I think was the okay. two places. So there, it was in my head. I was uh, thinking Nice, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Off to France. Uh, everybody fits it in France. Be grand. Uh, that was it for uh, my big note moment for the episode. Uh, guys, any other notes that we haven't talked about for episode one? I'm sure there's hundreds. <laughs> First off, I mean, I thought the, the the opening to the season was brilliant. For me, there was a lot of uh, kind of, I don't know, metaphorical meaning to it because it's not really focused on like the snow and, and the weather that much other than for me, other than the, the very beginning when mm-hmm. Vanessa's walking through that beautiful pure white snow. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's a kind of, it's symbolic of after season one, there's been a certain level of, of, of closure and, and, um, you know, resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we see Evelyn Poole start kind of, chanting away and, and, and kind of messing up with Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought it was a very beautiful opening. The way it was shot as well in that white snow, it was, it was just yeah. really nice. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Really, really good start. It's like, it's like a new clean slate, I think, uh, would be mm, the way you're exactly. starting off a new season that way. And I love that it doesn't take long. <laughs> you know, it's only about, what, about no. 30 seconds. And then suddenly you have Evelyn Poole <laughs> chanting in the background going, I'm right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very yeah. cool. Uh, John, anything from, from um, you? It was just, I suppose, to close out um, season one a bit, actually, that uh, Malcolm and his wife Gladys do bury uh, Mina. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they are still both married, um, importantly here, that uh, Malcolm's still married to Gladys, but in no way, shape or form is this a loving marriage. Um, yeah, I think she certainly makes that clear where she goes, we have no more children for you to save or kill. Mm. Um, and you know, both Peter and Mina now six feet under John Logan could have done a zombie 
Penny Dreadful <laughs> season three, um, <laughs> where Mina and Peter come out to haunt Gladys mm. and uh, do the zombie apocalypse in Victorian Britain. Maybe. That would have been kind of interesting. I have a feeling yeah. that they're still haunting Malcolm. Well, like, no, exactly. Um, and that was the only thing between them was their children, I suppose. Um, but that mm. they are together because, again, they're... You know, even though we've talked about things like the the brothels and the illegal dog fighting previously, there is still a, a social acceptability here, and, and to prevent um, perceived or real um, slight on their names, they are staying together for mm-hmm. for for social status, effectively. Yeah. And I think this is something that definitely yeah. comes through again in these first four episodes, which um, I found really interesting, and yeah. um, that. You know, it's that contradiction in Victorian society of, of this quite moralistic and, uh, you know, very old school now, as we would see it, it's almost the idea of dowries and, and marrying into land and titles and wealth. Uh, and we have a lot of that still here and just the social restraints that that puts on people mm-hmm. yet at the same time, there is this exploration of, of, of more narcissistic and, and, um, sort of, uh, activities less constrained by the, the, the parables of the, the new and old testament, <laughs> I suppose. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I think, I think it's one of those things with, within Victorian society that you can basically do whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect your standing in society. So, uh, so you can set up a dog fighting ring if you want to, as long as, the regular public don't know that you've just done that kind of thing. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So it's a very intriguing uh, look back at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I find Malcolm such a complicated character. I'm mm-hmm. um, just, just there's so many layers to him, so many um, contradictions to him as well. And, and a large part of it is, as you mentioned, this social standing, him remaining true and, and, being bound to be married with Gladys, mm-hmm. um, although there is no love. He mentions it time and time again. There's no love between them anymore. That's effectively just dead. And, and the fact that he has been out to save his children, yet he's the one that's killed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's such a, a strange thing to try to get your head around what is going on inside this guy's head. Because yeah. um, uh, there is a sense of duty that he has, but there's also the, a, a sensibility that yeah. he has as well. I mean, like with Mina being what she was um you know so he had to he had to do that so i don't know mm-hmm. i just find out of everyone he's the most complicated to to really crack and to i'd, I'd hate to be him out of all of them i'd hate to be kind of him yeah, right? Right. and I, I think as well you know it just that relationship even though it, it, it's very peripheral is probably really important because we do have madam carly in her um den i suppose her her coven um saying sort of giving the orders that she will go after Vanessa and Sir Malcolm uh, whilst her her daughters um should focus on the lichen of mm-hmm. of, of, Ethan. of Ethan you know yeah. they 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 definitely know that he is something supernatural mm-hmm. um and not just pure uh, human yeah absolutely absolutely shall we leave it there for our discussion on episode 1 of Penny Dreadful season 2 yeah that's all the notes i've got Excellent. Yeah. We'll take a little break and we'll be back with our discussion of episode two of season two after this message from Ray of Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, 
with a podcast honouring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your conchu on. Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. This is Derek on TV Podcast Industries. We're talking about Penny Dreadful Season 2, Episode 2, Verbus Diablo. Yes, hello, fellow Darklings. This is John as well. Dare I say it? Looking forward to getting into the devil's tongue? Um, <laughs> that seems a little dodgy to me. Uh, but yes, uh, can't wait to get into this one. Mm-hmm. And welcome, welcome, everyone. Hello, I, I'm back. Looking forward to talking all things dark and and evil and... You know, generally horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> dreadful. I should say dreadful. It's definitely dreadful. Definitely dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely dreadful. Yes. Let's uh, let's jump straight into our discussion about Verbus Diablo. Uh, episode once again, directed by James Halls and written by showrunner John Logan. John, do you want to give us the synopsis for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. Vanessa survives a nighttime visit from the three witches, and Samalcom promises to do his best to protect her. He shows her a soup kitchen and medical clinic of sorts where he donates some of his time and money. There, Vanessa meets the creature. Sir Malcolm meets Mrs. Poole in a department store where she mesmerizes him. Ethan, Vanessa, Dr. Frankenstein and Sir Malcolm invite Ferdinand Lyle to translate the Verbis Diablo for them from the British Museum. He tells them that in the 11th century, a monk named Father Gregory claimed he was possessed by a demon who spoke to him in the Verbis Diablo. He wrote down what he was told and those artifacts are now contained in the British Museum. Dr. Frankenstein, meanwhile, has successfully reanimated Brona, now called Lily, but he struggles with his own feelings for her. She quickly learns to speak and has lost her accent, but has no memory of her past life. Dorian Gray meets Angelique, who works in a brothel. Finally, Inspector Rusk visits Warren Roper, one of the men who was severely injured in the attack at the Mariner's Inn. At this stage, the doctors have no idea if he will ever again be able to speak. Yes, the cat's got your tongue, or in this case, a massive werewolf. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Ripped it out, no doubt. Maybe, maybe. But hopefully he'll be able to speak in future. Uh, It will be bad times for Ethan if he does actually tell the story of what actually happened to him on that day. But again, intriguing that the person that's left alive is one of the Pinkertons who was following Ethan. So he's very unlikely to tell the story of what happened, isn't he? If anybody else had been left alive, they may have told the story about this man who transformed. Uh, Oh my God, scary, scary. But this uh, Pinkerton who was on the trail of Ethan, he's not going to give up his quarry just because he was attacked and lost half his face. No, exactly. Uh, I'm just wondering how Cherry Phosphate may react if he takes a swig of that into his kind of a presumably destroyed face. He'll definitely need a few ice chips. A fizzy face (laughs) he will have. (laughs) (laughs) just because you looked up cherry phosphate because you had no idea what it was no i didn't (laughs) nobody else remembers the line at all but uh, i he will need some ice chips that was the other thing ice chips are a little more important (laughs) um although cherry phosphate the precursor to the worst drink ever Mm -hmm. cherry aid yeah Uh, awful 
I like it. Yeah. Oh. Well, this episode features probably the scariest moment uh, from John's history of watching television. Uh, and I think he mentioned at the start of our episode one of season two discussion that he didn't realize this moment happened so early <laughs> in the show. But can we should we get it out of the way now, John? And yeah. To talk about your big moment from this episode that still has you waking up screaming. I suppose this is a bit of a juicy one as well, uh, to be honest. Um, yes, it is the dollhouse from hell mm. um or dare i say it, the dollhouse in the basement of the witch's coven Oof. um yeah i didn't realize this was introduced so early and dare i say i didn't realize that the uh baby thing or I'm, i think i should call it the baby autopsy uh came in here but yes we I suppose we do get to the heart of the matter uh, with this, um, and um, and that heart being a, a, a baby's heart. Um, but this is both, like, to me, it is amazing and incredibly just diabolical, oh, yeah. gruesome, and uh, yeah, very. It is evil personified, and if we're talking about the the. Um, if we're talking about the devil's tongue, certainly um, this has an appropriate amount of, of darkness around it. And dare mm-hmm. I say, it would probably be too much, possibly, for some uh, some viewers. Yep. But effectively, one of Evelyn Poole or Madame Carly's uh, daughters has uh, kidnapped um, a baby off off the underground, um, killing her the, the baby's mother and father, um, and has brought it back to the coven where... Um, Madame Carly is now about to use um, the the heart of this baby to effectively bring to life um, a doll that she has made. Mm. Um, So effectively, um, I've kind of... In my notes, I've almost, it's almost like an intricate voodoo doll. It is yep. to, to bring the inanimate to, to life here. Um, and, uh, the, just the way this is done. I mean, I, the camera following, um, Helen Macquarie down the spiral staircase, uh, with the darkness really nicely done. Mm. The, um, the music is, is appropriately uh, atmospheric um and I, I do like that they've introduced a choral element because mm-hmm. um that really does um add to um the i suppose the the wibbly wobbliness of it um the, the the frightening you know yeah. being um kind of off balance you know that mm-hmm. the the voices it, it kind of it feels as though madame carly is not acting alone even though she is it's like there is some kind of unseen presence i.e the master her master uh watching her and directing her in this by having this choral and i i think it's always um it's always good to have a bit of choral to add a, a godliness or, or devilness mm. to uh, a piece of music um but uh yeah the this ceremony that she is doing to reanimate um this doll of effectively uh vanessa um and it's just very really lifelike as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah really lifelike really creepy there is a moment where it's spinning around and you just have the doll's eyes um the her sort of dissecting the the baby so this autopsy to get the 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 heart but there is one moment where it focuses on a doll who's got the these 
big eyes with <laughs> I shouldn't laugh uh, with the mouth open and it's like I think we all had that expression yeah. on our faces um, <laughs> exactly. as we were watching this this scene um, but again Helen Macquarie the, the commitment because you know you can imagine getting your script going what do I have to do yeah. uh, I mean exactly. like what and the commitment of her um the the sheer sense of her as a force of evil mm-hmm. really comes across here uh, in this creepy doll filled I mean dare I say it, I hate dolls clowns are a walk in the park oh, yeah. dolls certainly these these kind of dolls or, or the Victorian dolls like get out of there if anyone has them they're going straight in the tip and <laughs> um, from my side because it's like a massive really compliment to the to the set designer and, yeah. the, and the prop oh, maker absolutely. for this episode because they, they do look realistic. I don't know whether they went out to shops and bought or out to museums and took uh, old style dolls, but they look realistic for the time. But it's just seeing the walls as the, as the camera pans upwards as well as side to side where this room yeah. is a very high room filled with dolls from floor to ceiling and they're all watching on. And then you get the impression by the end of the scene because the heart is inside this Vanessa doll that potentially every single one of those dolls is another person in London or around the world yeah. being controlled by this coven of witches. Yeah, or a, or a victim of, of some sort. Yeah. Um, I, I think as well, just that final moment, which is right at the end, where Vanessa kind of almost takes a, a, a stumble forward mm-hmm. and a breath in, you know, as that connection is made yeah. between her and this doll, which is now under the control of the, the witch coven, mm-hmm. um, is is really interesting. And I mean, for Madame Carly as well, you know, she seems to despise Vanessa. Yeah. Um, and, and it's maybe because her master favors Vanessa above her. And she's actually, she realizes she's having to do his, his bidding to effectively replace herself almost, um, maybe. maybe in the food chain or at least put someone a peg higher. And mm. um, so you really get a sense of, of, of hate from, um, Madame Carly yeah. towards Vanessa here and, and it being done in this doll form as well. You just wonder what she will do. But as I say, it, it is almost like a voodoo doll. I mm-hmm. suspect I'm expecting pins or, or whatever going into it. Yeah. Um, or whatever she's going to do to it, um, yeah, yeah, kind of really does take it to the next level from the voodoo dolls as well. Like you expect it to be just like a stuffed, a stuffed doll with mm-hmm. with some pins, as you say, John. But um, in true to the to the age, uh, when she opens up the doll, there's a lot of mechanics in there as mm-hmm. well, and she yeah. actually connects the baby's heart mm-hmm. to all those mechanical bits yeah. and pieces in there. It's so, so it's a lot more complicated than just your run-of-the-mill voodoo doll. Yeah. Um, you know what yeah, those they, things. We all have them. <laughs> <laughs> Former exactly. bosses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but they, oh, wow. It, it was so good, as you say, Derek, as well. The way that the set designers arranged the order of them as well, mm. I don't know about you, but each time I was going, oh, my gosh, that was scary. Yeah. Oh, God, that's even more terrifying than the last one. And it got progressively worse and like more yeah. horrifying as we went yeah. along. Yeah. yeah. And I think when you get to that one that one doll with its eyes wide open and mouth wide open, it's, it's just <laughs> placed perfectly. It's at that moment where you're going, it can't get any worse or it can't. Uh, but it does, it does kind of speak to that thing of coming to this show with your own perspective and your own experience of shows like this and movies like this that you've seen before. You Well, I certainly expected that what was what was happening here was they were effectively going to 
well, let's say adopt the baby into their coven for some reason. I didn't think it was going to be a sacrifice and take the heart out. I thought they were stealing the baby for a purpose. Maybe raising it within their coven was kind of the idea that was going through my head. So when it happened, Uh, you know, when they, when she arrives with a brown bag that's closed, I I suddenly realized, oh, okay, that was, that's the uh, dead baby that she's brought with her to this. I just kind of thought they were going to eat it for some reason. Just because she'd been bathing in blood. I was like, yeah, "Yeah, this isn't going to end well for this little thing. But even, even eating it, I don't know. Well, that's going to sound really bad. I'm trying to work out how, how best to say this. Um, but even if they were eating the baby, I don't think we would have gotten the scene of the baby dissection that happens, which I do think right. is still massively shocking. I'm a horror fan. I, I've watched a lot it of is. horror movies and I haven't seen yeah. something like that in there. And I do think this may have been a moment in season two where casual viewers of Penny Dreadful who <laughs> kind of can dismiss the horror in some in some episodes, that might have been a moment where they went, whoa, okay, too far. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I suppose again, it, it's it's the idea of infanticide. Anyway, has been um, a part of you mm-hmm. know culture as, as this old sect. Um, you know the use of sacrifice as well for what you would think of as being a spiritual, adding to a a spiritual plane or or, or for. Um, appeasing the gods, you know, it's something that's not, I mean, this did seem like a sacrifice, yeah. but to an end of, um, control, sort of control. Yeah. Um, and I suppose sacrifice, whether from the Aztecs and for all the Egyptians, the, these routine ritual sacrifices was about, um, controlling the population here. It's more specific mm. uh, and more supernatural. But again, not to say that it isn't shocking. It is, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's something that um, is not unusual. Well, the, the, this is, but yeah. the killing of a baby for some kind of sacrifice um, or a newborn, yeah. you know, possibly. I, I think another show would have just dealt with in dialogue. I think that's <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, did maybe. you kill that baby? Yeah, it is. Grant, move on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's yeah. true. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, when when she had the babies body out there as well i I was thinking yeah how how far are are they going to take this and when she Mm. took the knife out it's like well i'm sure this would turn off many yeah many casual viewers um it is i wouldn't say crossing the line but it's pushing the boundary it really is kind of horror and again well well done to um the actor uh for 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 doing it (laughs) yeah i mean it's a very strange thing to do definitely i dare i say it as well ray that in terms of your main point for this i was there going i really want to do the lighter hearted part of this rather than the well the other heart part of this um which is the teeny tiny baby heart yeah yeah, yeah the darker so heart. um well speaking of which right do you want to take us on to your main point for this episode yeah um i picked this one because this one threw me i mean i have watched the the series before but um it's been a while so i kind mm-hmm. of forgot and and again um ferdinand lyle actually in cahoots with the witch's coven, I thought, I wow, know. okay, here we go. Um, he, and, uh, he kind of lost a little bit of respect from me as well because mm-hmm. I was enjoying his character so much. And then it's like, no, you can't be yeah. doing this to, to mm-hmm. the team. Um, but we find out from Evelyn Poole that they have some um, stuff on him yeah. that uh, threatens to, to reveal. 
nothing's really divulged, but you did you get the sense that there are a lot of, um, I guess, photographs or, or some sort of evidence of uh, something outside his marriage? Yeah. Um, Quite a lot some of things sort of outside his marriage, I think, is, is kind of what comes across. It's uh, I think, I think yeah. when they say they have photographs, it's just you see one of them going, so many photographs. <laughs> you were so indiscreet. It's just one of, those, one of those moments where it's like, if you didn't want this to be found out, you really should have taken one photograph, not hundreds. Yeah. I, I think I love that, he, you know, he does pluck up the courage to sort of counter um, Evelyn Poole here, but it's around his hair color mm -hmm. and she just yes. laughs it off. And I, I, it's like, my hair color is natural. Yeah. Um, and she just laughs. Um, and I just thought that was great a bit like you ray yeah i had forgotten that there was this association and and yeah. where he was effectively being blackmailed really i suppose mm -hmm. um by the the coven uh, but i thought he was excellent in this episode and yep. brought the light relief um for sure mm -hmm. to to mm -hmm. this episode which it needed given what we've just discussed about under my point yeah yeah I mean, with also his role for the rest of this episode as well, it's really good because it sets up that that you kind of scrutinise his every action now mm -hmm. after it being revealed that he's kind of in there with the witches coming. So I found that really effective yeah. because where he was just comic relief, now you're kind of like, you know, you kind of question everything yeah. he does because he, he says he wants to misdirect them. So mm -hmm. um, he's there. He's responsible for actually helping them decipher this Verbus Diablo from the artifacts from the museum, which they will, you know, hoping to get. Yeah. Um, what's he going to do? He's, he's not going to translate it properly or not. Although you do get Ethan, who who is well versed in Latin as mm -hmm. well, um, and Sir Malcolm, who knows his Arabic. So uh, there are things that they can't that he can't kind of um, pull the wool over. Yeah. Um, some of the yeah. yeah. I do kind of like that, uh, even with the blackmail, that effectively Evelyn Poole is saying to him, oh, well, go ahead and translate the whole thing, because it all leads to me in the end anyway. <laughs> like, I like that she kind of has spoiled the whole um, investigation piece that he's that's going to be going to be happening, because they'll all end off on her doorstep anyway. So just let, let them go ahead. Let them decipher it. Let them take weeks to do that. It all leads to me. I'm the final end yeah. point. Like, that's quite quite interesting. Uh, but Lyle is, is a favorite character, definitely. And in this episode, mm. he has some fantastic moments. His flirtation with uh, with Ethan oh. is hilarious yes. from the that first moment he arrives when he goes, oh, you're gigantic. I look positively Lilliputian <laughs> in, your, in your shadow. Yeah. <laughs> and then he hears his voice and goes, oh, American, I can't contain myself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, fantastic. Him fawning over Ethan is just so, so good. Mm -hmm. um, what the other thing he says, like, cause I think the writing here for, for Mr. Lyle, um, it is, is great. He, you know, he turns to Ethan and he goes, mischief is best on his small groups. Isn't that right, Mr. Chandler? As though, um, you know, we're expecting some mischief from, from the two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's all very, uh, a little entendre, you know, in, in, in this double entendre, um, from, from Mr. Lyle, presumably related to the photographs that Madame Carly has, mm -hmm. um, as well. But, uh, yeah, this, the fawning, um, over Ethan is is really good. What's the 
<laughs> what's the other one where he says that he will bring both guns and it elicits like yes. this real sort of just laughter from from Mr. Mr. Lyle as uh, he's going to bring uh, both his guns mm-hmm. to their sort of secretive quest in, in the, the vaults of the British Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it how Ethan um, doesn't play it down and doesn't shoot him down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I love how he kind of plays along with him anyway. Yeah. It, it yeah. just shows a nice kind of... Um, you know, kind of friendship between the two and a camaraderie. Yeah. Um, so, again, that just all adds to the fact that, you know, later on we know that Lyle is not 100% loyal to the group. So Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I say to John that um, that I read the uh, portrait of Dorian Gray in between the first and second parts of our discussions on Penny Dreadful, and this is the kind of playful discussions that you have between some of the characters, between Dorian and, and his benefactors, I suppose, or his, his group of friends. This is the kind of playful discussions that you have where there's lots of not even sexual tension. It's just lots of sexual innuendo discussions between them where they just banter back and forth all the time. It's sort of innocent, but also you, that there would be a possibility that Lyle would absolutely jump Ethan if he gave, given the opportunity as well. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I love the banter yeah. between it. It's part of the fun of, of everything that's going on. And I love that Ethan plays into it as well. I think that's, that's quite fun because of obviously the relationship he had with, uh, with Dorian Gray in season one as well. So, um, Lyle seems to be a favorite character of everybody you see uh, as he arrives for dinner um you see vanessa going oh our guest is here i'm getting ethan and bringing them downstairs and everybody's excited to see mr lyle when he arrives i think everybody likes the character so seeing in episode two of season two that he's not working directly with them he's also working against them um you know obviously being forced by uh, evelyn Poole is is kind of sad for for all of us watching i think yeah uh, because we like the character so much and just hoped he would be the foppish funny one in the corner as the episodes went on um so it's a bit sad but as i say at least he's allowed to continue to work with them and he won't he won't be putting steering them off all the time so. yeah definitely um i do like it as well when they do go to the british museum where they're kind of he, he's about to go down into the vaults and another mm-hmm. uh, curator is coming back up and he just goes he's my brother um <laughs> i think right. that's really that's good, good. um and uh, and then he's kind of fairly you know, he kind of waves it aside because effectively the British Museum is, um, a, just a massive pornography warehouse. Um, <laughs> so it's second only to the Vatican. So there are people always nipping down into the vaults to, to get a quick, um, sort of pervy gander uh-huh. at, at the collection. I love, um, I love second only to the Vatican. Yeah. I, I thought that was really good. I, I think, um, and it, it, it's one of those things that I, I liked were he's, I think Malcolm asks if he can bring the, the Verbus Diablo, these relics back to his place. Um, and again, it's just a nice little touch around, you know, I suppose the collection of, uh, the British Museum where mm. he goes, um, uh, you know, plundered wealth from the British Museum is often ignored. I'll just plunder it back to bring <laughs> to your house. Um, yeah. and even just the fact that there's all this pornography or whatever in the vaults it's it's the the idea that you know there are curators who decide what people see Mm -hmm. um and 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 this this can very much reflect the the society at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that's why a lot of plundered um colonial artifacts from different parts of the world were in sometimes so caused so much excitement uh, and part of that was down to shock because of some of the images mm-hmm. um and then they were quickly as um as mr lal says then were 
put back into storage and were ignored or forgotten. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's kind of really interesting here um, as well. The only other thing as well was the heraldic shield aspect as well, where you had the two prancing wolves on one of them. And there's that nice little conversation between Mr. Lyle and uh, Ethan, Mm -hmm. uh, not one that isn't um, banter driven, but more just saying that, you know, these totems are of defense. Most people think that they are to instill fear into the enemy yeah but actually it, it is more about the the defense of these creatures for um i suppose the the, the families or the individuals mm-hmm. that have these um totems on their heraldic shields yeah, so i thought exactly. that was quite nice yeah it, it's just a another level of the mystery for, for ethan as well yeah, unraveling absolutely. it um and him telling about that story about the timber wolves uh, as well. Yeah. Um, but it, it's good. It, it's, um, I like how they kind of, they add little bits of this just to, just to give you a little bit more sense of Ethan. He's not totally forgotten with his, I mean, he's got yeah. a big role in this season, but, yeah, absolutely. um, but how everything ties together. I mean, mm-hmm. everything's really well integrated. Um, so yeah, I love that. I love that scene. Yeah. John, you, um, that guy, the look on the guy's face when, when <laughs> Lyle says, you know, he's, uh, he's my brother. He's yeah. like, oh, skullduggery is not my forte. <laughs> like, like <laughs> you know, I'm not into this. <laughs> it is. It's the other thing I've forgotten when yeah. they're talking about the, the shields and the totems. And he goes, I looked at my family totem. It was two interlocking fish. On a field of lavender, <laughs> it was like it could only be that. Yeah. Um, and he goes, "Fish." He's kind of like, "Why fish?" <laughs> the power of fish uh, on a field of lavender. Oh my goodness, that I just cracked up. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Is this where I tell you that my family crest has got a fish on it? <laughs> I know it, it does, knowledge, so but yes, not on a field of lavender. You've also got a bloody fist. We do have the uh, yeah. have the the red hand of Ulster on our on our. Uh... Our family crest as well. Yeah, uh, there you go. But, uh, but no, a really good scene. I, I did get the impression that this may not have been the first time that somebody caught Mister Lyle going into the <laughs> into the bowels of, yeah. uh, of the British Museum with somebody else that he may not have been taking with him. So uh, I did see the reaction of him being called his brother and kind of going. You could have said friend or cousin or something. This guy is <laughs> yeah. definitely not your brother. <laughs> um, is that it about, about Ferdinand Lyle? I know it's a shocking moment that he's uh, that he's working for Madame Callie and or Evelyn Poole. Uh, is that it, that it about that point, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, pretty much. Good stuff. I'll go on to the other moment in the episode, and I think we've talked about the poetics of the character of Caliban before. Um, the oh, yeah. the moment where we have Vanessa um, and Malcolm going to uh, to feed the poor and uh, and sick of London, I think, is a really good scene because I like the essential idea that Vanessa needs someone to take care of her because of everything that's been going on. She feels like she's going completely crazy i suppose you know she asks the question is this what's what is crazy your deepest darkest fears coming out and living in the world um and i like the idea that malcolm goes well if you need a little bit of sanity in your life go here and be selfless for a while um i think that's a really nice touch and she meets up with caliban this is the first time these two characters have been on screen together and you know possibly two of the most interesting characters of the show um having this philosophical and uh, religious debate i suppose in a way and um, as they meet each other I, I kind of like the idea that um vanessa owns up to the fact that this wasn't a selfless act for her at all this was an act that she was doing yeah. to relieve herself from some of the pressure and, and tension in her life um and being able to meet someone like caliban is is really helpful for her um where she talks about the fact that she 
hasn't essentially turned her back on God, but they haven't really talked very well in a while kind of thing. And then she gets the perspective of someone like Caliban, who believes in poetry more than in, in the books of, of religion. You know, he kind of says, well, I've read the Bible before. And then, then I found Word, Wordsworth and I found, um, the beauty of the world and everything that's going on here. And it's diametrically opposed to Vanessa's belief that she has to go through her pain on the world here before she can get to heaven and before she can go to a great afterlife. He's saying, well, we only have one life and it's the life we live here on earth. And if you don't experience that, then you need to look closer. If you don't see the beauty in people around you, then you need to find some time to look at that, not plan for what's going to happen in the afterlife. I think it's a beautiful discussion between the two of them. Yeah, oh, it, absolutely, absolutely engaging um, mm-hmm. to listen to these two just talk to each other. And and just before I mention um, stuff about uh, this discussion of you know pagans and um, people who find religion, mm-hmm. um, Caliban he can't complain, can he anymore about people being mean to him? He's <laughs> so many people are so kind to him. <laughs> um, um, Vanessa is just so endearing towards him. I I really mm-hmm. loved it. It kind of it kind of warmed me towards Vanessa again as yeah. well. Like she has, yeah. she shows no sort of um, discrimination towards him. The way he looks, she's very warm to him. Even at the end, she says, "Oh, you've got beautiful eyes." You know, yeah. the eyes that even he mentions, I think later on uh, about how they're not your, your typical eyes and they're mm-hmm. not they're not beautiful at all. Yeah. Um, but I I did I love this conversation in the sense that yeah. um, Caliban John Clare talks about. Pagans have it good because they're free. You know, yeah. they, they're not bound by anything. Whereas people who have found religion, there's this constant fear of the devil or evil. Yeah. And, yeah. and for people to, that people do good because they're so scared of being evil and doing mm-hmm. bad. And so you can kind of understand where he's coming from. Yeah. And, and the way yeah. he puts it is just so well put as well. Um, and they just bounce off each other really well. I yeah. really enjoyed this scene. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really good to see the two of them, isn't it? I wonder if that thing with John Clare was with Caliban. I wonder if that opinion he has about the other humans, you know, it is kind of, well, it's obviously motivated by what happened to him with Victor, you know, that he was left alone to, to survive on his own. Um, and while he has met some, lovely people and some people who've been lovely to him uh there are other people who have it out for him even yeah. his new employer uh we see that um, yes. he's going to be using him in his exhibition at some point in the future that's why he's employing him but to his face he's very polite and very nice and gives yeah. him gives him a great job but uh behind his back he's going to become a feature uh, in the future possibly mm. so yeah uh, so that's that's an intriguing side of of the people that he meets you know can he really trust the face that people are presenting to him and i think yeah. part of the opinion he has about you know being a pagan means you just if you want to treat people well you treat people well and you get and you get uh payback from that or if you treat people badly they will turn on you so uh so he will treat everybody around him with respect apart from victor um, and yeah. he has reason to uh to treat badly but. yeah I, I i love this as well i i love this conversation i think it's two things it, it it's where he, like he's saying i believe in this world and the creatures that fill it it's this idea that with with religion you're looking to prevent yourself from going heading you know down effectively um and you want to promote yourself up up to heaven and so as a result do are you ever really who you 
who you are, whether that's for good or for ill. And as you say, Ray, it's the pagans are responsible to each other, not to, to God or the devil, because they are just playing out who they are naturally and, and that responsibility, whether it's good or evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that. And I thought the quote, um, that he does here, um, from William Blake, you know, William Blake is a massive, character around art and poetry in in this period exploring the idea of religion through his artwork Mm -hmm. and and through his poetry which caliban quotes here for me again that with madame carly's master you know the 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 number 666 the the artwork at the back of the devil used in in the hannibal series um is massively um influential and well known as well as god coming out from behind a sun um you know two massive um sort of pictures uh, around religion and then his um his poetry here saying about finding these heavenly things that we quote around the bible in the in the day-to-day from his his poem auguries of innocence right. so like this is a really nice quote for me because I, I think Blake is like really interesting yeah. in terms of what his philosophy and he was massively influential um at that time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought this was lovely. Um it really kind of connected with me actually. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um I do remember that painting now. I remember the episode of uh, of Hannibal that it was used in. It was a, a fantastic like painting. Uh, really important to the show to have that kind of thing. And it's great that they've pinned part of this episode on on that as well. So very cool. Very cool. That's it for my uh, my big point. Uh, any notes that we haven't talked about? I have one, uh, just because I want to call it out. Uh, Brona, without her Northern Irish accent, um, <laughs> getting her, yes. her London accent. I do wonder, remember we said when we talked about, uh, about uh, Billy Piper in season one, that it's not as... Um, bad uh, an accent as we remember when we saw it first uh, her her northern irish accent but i do wonder after the episodes had aired did they kind of say well when she comes back in season two we can allow her to speak in her normal accent so she doesn't have to do the northern <laughs> yeah, irish one again exactly. uh, i wonder if there was a bit of a reaction from from the public who'd watched it or or something but uh, i certainly didn't think it was as bad in season one this time around as i did the first time i saw it uh, so i just i just thought it was interesting they made that choice to give her a a, a london accent again yeah, I speak like you, uh, creator. You know, I kind of like that. Of course, I do. I speak like you because you created me, and I'm only talking to you. So. Yeah, she's very well yeah. pronounced uh, now. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good. I mean, if if that was the case, Derek, I think that was a really good cover up and a good save yeah. by the writers and just saying because yeah, it makes sense. And and mm-hmm. and I bought it as well. And it actually furthers her becoming a, a completely different character, which mm-hmm. is like her her new life. So, um, yeah. It works well. Yeah. I thought it was interesting uh, calling her Lily. Uh, you know, Lily Flower is very associated with funerals um, generally, uh, which I, I thought was quite good. Yeah. Her reaction to that as well, I was wondering, and I, I, I you know, I didn't want to read too much into it, but her reaction to being called Lily, where she says, um, I don't know why it is, but that inspires sadness in me. We've talked before about her name meaning sadness in Irish, Brona, uh, her original name meaning sadness in Irish. Is that what she's saying when she hears the name Lily and she goes, I'm thinking of sadness. I'm thinking of Brennan. Possibly, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Big note I've got. I kind of, with all the, the scorpion stuff being, and we see it at the start of this, um, where, um, Vanessa's sort of painting the, the scorpion with her own blood on mm-hmm. the floor. And we see it again here. So I, I decided to have a quick look into the scorpion motif because 
it's not just from this episode either. She did have a necklace from season one um, as well with, with scorpions on it, but That's we right. see it in episode one, this episode in episode two. And then in the next episode, there's all the versions of the scorpion mm-hmm. done by um, the cut wife of, of Balanchy Moore. Um, and so I, I was kind of like looking into the meanings. Um, and also I'm, I have Scorpio as my uh, star sign. Not mm-hmm. that I necessarily take too much credence in that, but it's pa- <laughs> it, it very much stands for passion, sex, but also change or transition and death. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also for protection, so a, a, almost a protection totem, which is certainly used in the next episode, but also of being alone, which really speaks to, um, I suppose maybe the feelings that Vanessa has in some cases. Mm. Well, she's um, trying to use it as a protection on the yeah, floor, isn't that what she's exactly, drawing yeah. in the floor in, in blood is, is to try and protect herself. Um, and, and so I was looking yeah. at the Egyptian uh, aspect of this, um, just given last season and also relates to death and also in Rome and Greece, it's associated with death because um, a scorpion sting killed Orion. But in Egypt, whilst it relates to death, it's also associated with the journey to to the afterlife okay. and the protection of the body and the viscera and accompanies them on that journey mm. uh, to the afterlife. Uh, I think the other great thing is that it's also the name of the king, as well as another great historical movie, The Scorpion King with The Rock. <laughs> I was about to say. Which I presume is totally accurate in how The Scorpion King oh, uh, arose. Yeah, the, um, the only thing inaccurate in that movie is the, uh, the special effects to uh, stick his face on top of a big scorpion, which yeah. is awful. I still remember how bad that Can was. you imagine that, being king in Egypt with, like, a, a, a stingy tail and mm. some big claws? Yeah, uh, until yeah. the giant boost comes along to step on you, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Very interesting. Though. Yeah, so I, I thought that was all... Um, it, it's pretty interesting, you know, because it, it's certainly a big feature in... It, it's brought more up front i suppose in in, in this second season mm. uh compared to the first so uh, i i thought that was i, th- I thought i should do a little bit of reading around I like that yeah I like it. ray anything from you any uh, notes that we've left out um yeah i had just one on angelique as well i thought mm-hmm. um she's a very interesting character yeah. uh, very consistent i guess with dorian's excesses mm-hmm. in the fact that um this is more of a obvious translation of Dorian being drawn towards someone who I guess is on the fringe of society, mm-hmm. will generate uh, a lot of talk and controversy, scandal, uh, and so he gets drawn to Angelique and uh, and they start something as well. So very yeah. interesting to see. Uh, again, I can't really remember where it goes because I, I, from memory, Dorian has so many excessive kind of bouts mm-hmm. throughout the season. So yeah. I'm not sure. I can't remember where this one goes, but um, it's, it's interesting to see um, Angelique and she, uh, the, the confrontation at the cafe is mm-hmm. um, a nice little dialogue between the two, oh, just it's getting fabulous. to know yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I love yeah. the dialogue between the two of them. I, mean, I, I like that it's still connected with Dorian um, looking at the photograph of Vanessa as, as uh, Angelique approaches. Yes. Angelique, no surname, uh, as, she, as she approaches. You know, I, I love some of the banter between the two of them where Angelique says, um, I tried coitness once, I just couldn't carry it off. <laughs> you know, there's this feeling that she is quite similar to Dorian in some ways, you know, um, saying to him, you know, uh, youth suits you, um, don't ever grow old. 
old kind of thing. It's something that he's probably heard many times. And as we know, he doesn't grow old. That is yeah. his central yeah. function is that he doesn't ever grow old. So, uh, so it, intriguing to see what happens with these two characters. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly someone that, that Dorian will enjoy, um, being around and he kind of needs, yes. he kind of needs to have that enjoyment in life that's what he's always pursuing so well we yes we see that um he is going to enjoy uh mm-hmm. angelique for sure i would say yeah. um yeah i like that she says try not to think too much stay simple but beautiful mm-hmm. <laughs> i thought that was kind of interesting <laughs> absolutely uh, one note that i have as well um that i thought was quite interesting here how old is evelyn Poole? because there's two comments that she makes in this episode she says uh, when she's with malcolm going off shooting she references not being this happy for eons like, yeah, I mean, yeah. eons is wow. not something that many people would say they'd say you know i haven't haven't been this happy in years but eons is yeah. a very specific word so definitely you wonder is he you know a thousand years old you know is she another Ooh. person that's is this why she's sacrificing things to to keep up her own youth is she another person that has a uh, transcended time well she's a good aim on the rifle range certainly. she certainly oh, beats uh, malcolm i love that also just inquiring about how she may get further acquainted o- over the shooting of these guns mm-hmm. um and it was a nice little conversation um very pointed between the two of them which absolutely. i thought was good yeah absolutely great to see a bit more of a bit more of malcolm in there uh, my last note for the episode is just because the episode is called uh, verbus diablo i uh, had to have a look at that it's obviously not a real language uh, it is made up for the show but it's created by david j peterson who created dothraki and valerian for game of thrones so um oh, wow yeah so what he does say is that it's impossible to teach because it's supposed to be something that is that lands with you uh, from Satan, from from Lucifer, when you hear the voice of the devil. So it doesn't it doesn't have a structure to it the way most languages would have. But he's developed a sort of structure around it so that the actors can at least speak their lines. But you couldn't translate it into English. That is that that's the way he created. But I love that it's uh, that it's someone involved in Game of Thrones who is that's great, um, very yeah. heavily involved in that. Yeah. I mean, hats off to the people that do the subtitles to that then. So they, they you know, they, they must know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they're just being spoken to by Lucifer when they're writing the subtitles. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> uh, is that it for notes on that episode two? Uh, the only other note I've got is um, just, and I think you brought it out in your point, Derek, uh, just that change um, in Malcolm and Vanessa's relationship from last season. Ah, yes. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a bit, it, it, it's changed in the, you know, so Malcolm does say, um, wherever we walk, we'll walk together. You know, he, he made his choice in, uh, the Grand Grignol Theatre, mm-hmm. um, in shooting Mina. Um, and that there's a more supportive Malcolm here. He's still got his ghosts. He's still got, um, his, his demons that haunt him. Um, and there's still room to move, but, uh, move forward between the two of them but the, the the it's kind of an underlining and saying that yes you are my daughter yeah. uh here uh, and we will walk together um to combat this you know because vanessa is going in to him frightened um distraught yeah. and, and needing that um that support so yeah. I, I thought that was just an interesting oh, little, no. little change yeah definitely good to pull it out i think that even in the first episode the first time you see the two of them together um vanessa rushes forward to hug malcolm um and there were moments yes. in season one where you felt like she would just be uh killed by malcolm if he could save his daughter but now she is truly his daughter in the second season yeah really oh yeah he he mentions uh as well like i've lost one daughter i'm not about to lose another so yeah. he, he spells it out clearly to how much vanessa means to him 
Exactly, exactly. Excellent. That's the end of our discussion on Season 2, Episode 2 of Penny Dreadful. We'll take a break and we'll be back with our discussion about Episode 3 of Season 2, The Nice Comers. Hi, this is Derek from TV Podcast Industries. We hope you're keeping safe and well at this time, and hopefully we're providing a little bit of entertainment to get you through some of the boredom that comes along with uh, what's been going on at the moment. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love if you subscribe to us at tvpodcastindustries.com, or you can support us by going over to patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries. You can also support us by leaving a review on your podcast catcher of choice, or of course, you can share the podcast with any of your friends, because sharing the podcast is sharing the love. Remember, we've covered many, many shows over all the years that we've been podcasting. We've covered things like Gotham, The Boys on Amazon Prime, we've covered Pennyworth, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agent Carter, Luke Cage, Iron Fist. So if you've enjoyed the coverage that you've been listening to, hopefully you'll check out some of the other shows that we've done. And we've got lots more to come. And thank you, as always, so much for listening. Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. We're back talking about Season 2, Episode 3, The Nice Comers. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other hosts, John. I should say fellow Nightcomers, given that's the title like of, that. uh, yes, this episode. I like that. And good evening, Nightcomers. This is Ray. G'day. Hello. Uh, should we be calling them Into the Nightcomers? That'd be a, that'd be a title <laughs> for them, Ray? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'd, uh, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> given that's one of one of the many podcasts that uh that ray now covers i was introducing ray as the uh the one of the hosts of into the knife the moonlight podcast one of the hosts of last sons of krypton but ray you've got about another four podcasts that you're doing at the moment right uh, <laughs> oh look just a couple of guest spots here and there mm-hmm. um but yeah just started a yeah a scarlet spider one so quite okay, happy nice. with that one. Oh, interesting interesting Excellent yeah that, that came from um from a big crossover uh, episode that we did a couple of years ago that you kind of fell in love with the Scarlet Spider. It did. It did. Yeah, that that kind of th- that interest blossomed from there because mm-hmm. um there was no Moon Knight tie-in issues so we covered the Scarlet Spider tie-in issues and yeah, he's is quite an interesting character. So yeah. um I've kind of run with it and uh, yeah, interested now to take the journey from when he started way back in I don't know the 90s or the 80s mm-hmm. or something um yeah. all the way through. One of one of Spider Man's clones, Ben Riley, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. about all I know. Uh, <laughs> and that was from our big crossover series, which we did, uh, Damnation, the Doctor Strange series, which actually ties quite well into uh, this episode of Penny Dreadful. Yeah. Bit of Damnation so, in yes. here for a lot of people as well, right? Yeah, big time. <laughs> Let's get into the discussion about it. Uh, this episode was directed by Brian Kirk. I will fill in some details about Brian Kirk because I forgot to write anything down. And once again, written by John Logan. There are episodes that John Logan doesn't write in this series. That's why I'm mentioning that he writes these episodes. We will get to a point where he's co-writing or other people are writing episodes. So uh, I will mention it each time when he's writing the episodes. (laughs) John, do you want to give us the synopsis for this episode? Sure. Vanessa recounts events from several years before when she went in search of answers to who she was. She sought out a witch known as the cut wife of Ballantry Moore to learn more about her visions. She also wants to help her friend Mina, who appeared to her in need of help. Even at that time, however, Madame Carly wanted Vanessa, though the cut wife refused to release her. Slowly and patiently, Vanessa learns her craft, but Madame Carly spins her own web, intent on getting what she wants. So this episode is kind of a um, an interim 
flashback, isn't it? Because it takes place almost directly after the last flashback that we saw where Vanessa first was visited by Mina. It seems that she didn't go straight to Malcolm, or maybe she did go to Malcolm and then went um, in search of the wife of Ballantry Moore. Um, but it's directly after the first visitation that she's had from Mina on the beach where she tells her, please come and save me kind of thing. Uh, and we hear that she is now feels like she's been possessed or that something um, terrible has happened to her and she wants to take the curse off herself. That's why she goes to visit the cut wife. So yes. I like the setup of the episode that it's um, it binds the two characters of Ethan and, and Vanessa together because he effectively is trying to get her to tell the story to him of of what this uh, red scorpion that she's been drawing on the ground is. And that's uh, showing that the two characters are much closer than they were in season one. There was definitely a relationship there and he was there at her side. But now he's saying to her, if you can't tell anybody else this story, tell me. Which I think is a nice touch to bring Ethan back by her side again. Yeah, I, I like, um, I, I really like that motif of, you know, the two of them sat down in, in her room. And I like the fact that actually episode four opens up with her kind of finishing this tale mm. in the, the drawing room with everyone else around it. it. It's, it's kind of like during this tale, her and, and, um, Ethan have brought in other people from Smalcom's house and, uh, the, the tale has grown larger and larger so that mm. everyone, I think ultimately by the end knows this. Um, I, I think as well, it's like, you know, this flash, back i suppose it is a little earlier in, in the series of season two and um, compared to the the flashback in, in season one which was on episode five yeah. but I, I like that they don't start with this that they you know it's it's not linear because um i think certainly in season one a flashback like that would have kind of given a different tone to the show possibly mm-hmm. uh, i think again here this this is nicely placed I, I i think uh with the events that have happened in the previous two yeah uh, and with what's to come so um yeah this was this was good to kind of get the connection of witchcraft into uh vanessa's life and mm-hmm. how that links to her struggle um within herself but also at the time with trying to help her friend mina yeah yeah i think also one of the big things for this is uh, we've, we've seen these kind of flashback episodes before on all the tv series and stuff and and as you mm-hmm. say john it's it's very well placed, but a lot of it rests on the shoulders of the actors, the two of them themselves, uh, Eva yeah. Green and Patty Lapone. They they do so well in this, and for them to carry the whole. Sh- I mean, of course, there are other characters there, like Sir Jeffrey and, and Evelyn Poole as well. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's just the two and yeah. the relationship um, with the two as well, all the way from um, when Vanessa actually goes to the front door and uh sh- and uh the cut wife is suspicious of her all the way through to to the relationship kind of growing mm-hmm. um until they become actually great friends towards the end. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with John Logan's script which is mm-hmm. well written but the performances my gosh I guess for me it has really elevated the season uh, mm-hmm. in as early as episode 3. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really good. And, and Paddy Lapone is just fantastic in this episode. Really, really good. John, do you want to kick us off with your main point from the episode? Yes, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Um, and whilst the, the cut wife uh, of Ballantree Moore is talking 
in some cases about the arrival of uh, Vanessa to her door, but also um, I suppose it could be looked more generally around um, uh, Madame Carly, who who certainly pricks up in in this episode uh, as well. And mm-hmm. um, I'm relating this to the angry baying mob with pitchforks uh, that come for her, uh, come for the witch uh, known as the cut wife of Ballantry Moor, um, and is her name is actually is actually Joan Clayton. Um, but I found this really, uh, emotional. It's that angry mob. It, it, it's the, it's the illogicalness of it. it. It's the sense of the, the fears of people being whipped up in this case by Sir Geoffrey, um, effectively because of his own impotence, which is really, dare I say, hammered home or whipped home by Mrs. Poole mm-hmm. uh, in their kind of motivating bondage session <laughs> uh, where she's really feeding him uh, the, the the idea that, um, you know, she she's emasculating him really, you know, make, making him that he will seem servile, um, you know, by letting his cattle die and effectively his estate to die because uh, what we know is that that um the cut wife has land that's been bequeathed to her and he wants that and she won't sell um whilst that this um this own web that we were talking about that madame carly is spinning is she is causing the cattle to die and there's a great moment where she's walking through the field it's seemingly just touching her but again it's her little assassin sort of um pins from her ring where she she's obviously putting some kind of poison uh to to kill the the cattle but she's really trying to drive home the idea that he is he's weak he's become impotent and and that's what he is using um to effectively bring uh the village folk to his service to go and i suppose call time ultimately are on the cut wife mm-hmm. here this is really a something driven by mrs pool um, and it's i i like the fact that there is the moment where he meets with the local vicar and effectively that this action is is given legitimacy by uh, the church. So there is, it is this papacy, and he goes, "No, it's sorcery." Yet this, the kind of transaction that's happening between Sir Geoffrey and the vicar is just purely one of mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. It's not of high Christian uh, morals or values. It's the fact that well, you will be out of a job. You won't enjoy the the lifestyle that you have here in this village with your vicarage yeah. if this continues and. And the same applies then with the villagers who are are hired with their pitchforks, where he kind of ruffles them up. I mean, he even sort of brings it back to the the Civil War, where they were on the side of the royalists, whereas the land bequeathed to um, the cut wife is from Oliver Cromwell, Mm. the parliamentarian. So um, it, it is... Um, that they will be out of a job, no one will buy it. You know, really playing on their their fears, um, their real fears. Yeah. But uh, I like how I like how his threat as well is about that he'll be fine. Basically, his threat is, yeah. I'll just move on. I'll move somewhere else where I'll be able to take my cattle, and nobody else will come here with their cattle, and you will have no jobs. Um, I'll be fine though. 
kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. rallying them behind his cause so he will be better off, but saying to them he'll be fine anyway. I think it's it's a really interesting kind of rallying cry against the, the people of Devon. Yeah, and it, it, it's just that baying angry mob that mm-hmm. can form so quickly. Um, yeah. Maybe there's an ele- there's a little bit of what could be argued as happening maybe all the time or certainly uh, at the moment mm-hmm. um, uh, around politics. But I, I, I found this, um, you know, really kind of emotional when they come and, and string her up by, by the wrists. Yeah. Uh, they tar her. Uh, and then set her alight, and and it's it's the girl who has had recently come to to her door um, to have an uh, have an abortion mm-hmm. um, as well, and um, she's the in, first one that sets her alight. Yeah, right? and she's yeah. the first one that cries out, "Burn the witch! Mm-hmm. Burn the witch!" Um, yeah. And it, it's it's all playing on people's fears to effectively remove her so that um, he can get her land it's for him it's it's nothing more uh than that um and i i just i i found this you know really uh tough to watch i i did find it quite emotional i thought the music again really played into that the sadness of, of it all yeah you have Vanessa as well being branded, um, but by the, the villagers from the, the, the flames, you know, they heat the iron from the flames of, uh, Joan's burning body. Yeah. Um, this is tough as well for me. You know, we were talking about the, the baby in, in the, in the witch's coven, um, and, and the, the, the dollhouse from hell. But this too, you know, this, this feels more real that this can happen. Um, it, it's all about whipping up people's fears and directing that hatred. Um, and, and so I, I, I found this really, um, sad. I think, and I think, you know, Patti Lapone, um, and Eva Green just play this so well, yeah. as do the baying crowd. I think it really gives a sense of, awfulness mm-hmm. about it um, and I think the saddest thing about it is there's a line from Joan Clayton where she says they send their women to me but despise me for what I do in yeah. terms of the abortion um, and it, it is that you know they're, they're knocking these women up but they don't want the the children um, and so the the women come for 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 the abortion I I found this really tough, and I found it hugely charged and, and emotional, um, and ultimately directed by um, Madame Carly, uh, Evelyn Poole, uh, mm-hmm. as uh, Sir Geoffrey's uh, wife, I think, in this case. I think she's certainly a wife or the mistress. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, yes, the, as I say, the motivation, the motivational bondage, um, speech in, in, in the great bedroom of the hall yeah. was, was one where, you, you know, you see her plan coming together. But again, this sense of embarrassment that she's trying to place on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have Vanessa challenging him previously in the woods, uh, where, you know, he's trying to have his, his moment with her, trying to rape her and, and she bites, uh, his hand. Mm-hmm. So th- it's massively charged this scene ar- ar- around, um, this whipping up of angry mobs with pitchforks. Yeah. I just thought this was really yeah. so powerful. And Vanessa um, makes him scream for her as well. Remember? Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, whatever about Evelyn pushing him in uh, in the ways of um, what would the people think of you if they saw you like this, if they saw you under my control, which is the embarrassment factor. Uh, even though nobody was around, uh, Vanessa did the same thing to him in that wood as well. You know, so there is 
this constant berating of yeah. his character. And, and that just adds to his frustration, I think. Mm-hmm. And so to take it back, I mean, John, you've covered it so well as well, but um, just the masterful writing of John Logan mm-hmm. um, to produce with an economy of, I guess, of script and time. This is only one episode. He yeah. gets in yeah. a, a, almost a whole movie in here, yeah. and he rounds out and develops all the characters, f- for me, I mean, enough yeah. so in that one-hour yeah. time slot to make you well invested in everyone. So, I mean, I'm going to recount some of the stuff you said, John, as well, but um, some other th- other stuff as well. Uh, the first thing uh, with Joan Clayton towards the end, the things that make it so emotional for me is that she finally says her name to Vanessa as well. She says, mm-hmm. my name is Joan Clayton. She she hadn't revealed that all that time because yeah. um, I think she makes a comment early on, like, are we courting? You know, why, yeah. why do you want <laughs> to know my name? name? Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't need your name. You don't need my name. Yeah. So she actually gives her that level of respect and trust. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, as you mentioned, the um, the woman that goes for, for the abortion as well. She's the first one to pipe up in, yeah. in the mob to say, burn the witch, you know. Yeah. And it comes from that sense of, as you say, John, that thing of um, there being a shame from the town folk. Yeah. They, know, they know that they need the cut wife, in a sense, to, to, to cover their indiscretions. Yeah, but exactly. at the same time, that they don't like her, they despise her. So um, so all this feeds into their emotion to, yeah, let's just get rid of her, because we hate her because we hate ourselves for what, yeah, what we have what to we do. we need, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's as well that that young girl who had the abortion, the, the shame is also on her, not on, on the blokes. Mm-hmm. And this, yes. you know... This whole burning of um, Joan Clayton here is, it's such a masculine thing. And it's how Madame mm-hmm. Carly has spun um, that and directed it towards the cut wife here. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's really, uh, really sad. Yeah. Absolutely. And and to, to make it even sadder for me as well towards the end, um, we know... A little bit towards the end, the cut wife, Joan, she's dying anyway. Like she falls yeah. down. She knows she's on her way out and she just, she says to Vanessa, just let me, just let me die, you know, in peace. I, yeah, I know I'm not, I've been here too long already. Yeah. And there's that tragedy that she could have passed away kind of peacefully in, in her house, mm-hmm. but this mob comes in and instead she has this terrible, awful, awful death, you yeah. know, where she gets tarred and she gets burnt alive. So there's that added tragedy. And and I think that's just such great writing from John Logan as well. Mm-hmm. So he manages to fit all this in uh, and it all culminating towards the end and you're just kind of like, oh, my gosh, and you, you feel for Vanessa as well when yeah. she's there. Um, I, I was afraid for her as well. I mean, I know mm-hmm. she obviously she's in the series, but it's like, why wouldn't they do something to her? Because yeah. um, that scene of Sir Jeffrey and her in the woods as well, again, just showing uh, something that you know makes him feel inadequate, and he gets his revenge at the end, saying, "Scream for me." And yeah, I was kind exactly. of glad that when she was branded, that she didn't actually scream. She yeah, kind of just like, ah, yeah. well, you yeah. know, yeah, absolutely. Every fiber of her being to hold back a yeah. scream is, is what you can see on her face, mm. and that's it's the truth, the true power of the character of Vanessa, really, as well. Uh, I know this is yeah. a bit of a two-hander episode, so we're probably going to talk about most of these points uh, are all going to be about just those two characters. So, Ray, do you want to kick into your point? Because we're probably still going to have some other yep. stuff to talk about there. Sure, uh, absolutely. I mean, my, my point was um, the, the kind of a big reveal, I guess, because it was insinuated at the beginning, um, the cut wife 
she is where she is because she was outcast because of what she did. Mm-hmm. She kissed a woman who ended up being her sister. Mm-hmm. And that's just that ended up being Evelyn Poole. And that was yeah. like, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we get these sibling, a bit of a sibling rivalry mm-hmm. between the two and the confrontation with the, the witches with Evelyn at the, at the gates or the stones at the, at the front of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, the cut wife going to Vanessa's just saying, Doors, I'll take care of this. Mm-hmm. I found that very compelling indeed. And yeah. you see the power of Evelyn Poole. Within seconds, she mesmerizes uh, the cut wife mm-hmm. and she's almost walking out past those stones and who knows what would happen if she yeah. did. Um, yeah. but she's saved by Vanessa. So I, I think this is a big reveal of, um, of them being sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and Evelyn Poole not aging. And yeah. the cut wife, obviously aging, um, yeah. uh, sorcery, and and just yeah, this rivalry, very yeah, cool, absolutely, and, yeah. and aging slowly though, because uh, we do find out yep. uh, later on that the um, the land was bequeathed by Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s, so she's been around for over 200 years. So feeding back into what I was talking about about Evelyn Poole being possibly hundreds of years old as well. So, um, so it, it's interesting to see how she's got herself into this position some of the discussions that they have even about you know she was a member of the society a sister within the society as well as being sister of evelyn pool the rest of the society accepted in lucifer followed his teachings and because she rejected them they expelled her and they put this life on her for the rest of her time you know this moment where even the reveal of her name is something really important she has accepted the name that the townspeople have given to her which is the cut wife that's what she thinks of herself as throughout the notes as i was writing it i was like are they going to give us a name for this person but it's just cut wife because that's the name she's accepted upon herself so that moment where she reveals i am joan clayton to uh to vanessa is a massive moment because it may have been the first Mm. time in decades centuries even where she revealed her actual name to anybody else yeah, I, I, as you say, there's that mention of 1644. There's potential she's even older. When she's being mesmerized there, she says, uh, well, Madame Carly says, come to me, sister, let's kiss and coil like adders in ancient mm, Egypt. Mm. Um, you know, the power of those words, um, I thought was really, really nice. And we get this backstory of these where they were day walkers, um, and turned to night walkers as they followed Lucifer, uh, with promises of power, youth, love, and wealth. Uh, so, you know, probably one of the reasons why Evelyn Poole is still so youthful here. But yes, they are probably um centuries old yeah. um if not millennia old here yeah, yeah. um the these these two two witches so i i thought that was um i just thought that was really uh good and i like the little backstory within this episode around the day walkers and night walkers mm-hmm. as well yeah kind of reminds me a little bit of uh a blade with the day walkers yeah <laughs> yes. the day walker, yes. very different <laughs> yes yes very much so i suppose let's go on to uh, on to my point my major point for the episode is just joan clayton offering vanessa a new life her life she's offering vanessa the opportunity to take over from her as the cut wife of of uh Ballantry moore um what I like about it is everything that's built up this background storyline of who this character is. Um, she speaks about the fact that she was not, was not born gifted in the dark arts, not born gifted with magic. Vanessa has been born with that. She's always had it within her from the beginning. Um, but I kind of appreciate that this character has been put in the position, has grown into 
what is required from the people around her. And that's why she does what she does. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to be the person that, that gives abortions to young girls who've been raped or young girls who've been mistreated by the men of the town and then hated by all the people around there. But she yeah. knows it's a needed function. And she knows that if Vanessa does want to hide from the darkness inside her, maybe this is a good place to be. You're on your own. Everybody hates you. You don't have to deal with your life. You don't have to answer any questions from everybody. Stay here, stay in the house. And she gifts the home to her as well. So that piece of land that they were trying to get off her by burning her to death is actually been gifted to uh, to Vanessa by the end of this episode. She is now possibly could have just lived there for the rest of her life and ignored the plea from Mina if that's what she was willing to do. So I, I like the constant conversation between the two of them where Vanessa's being trained up in these ways and Joan's saying to her constantly, well, you know, you've got all the plan. I've got all of, all of the uh, abilities that I have now. So does that mean you're going to take over from me? And Vanessa kind of going, well, let me think about it. <laughs> I have a few more things I need to learn. Let me think about it, you know. Um, but she does have all of the powers of, uh, of Joan by the end of the episode. And as, as you mentioned, Ray, she does go to her death, uh, violently, but she would have died quite soon afterwards anyway. So, um, the fact that she's almost training in her, uh, her follower, uh, by the end, uh, throughout this uh, this episode, is is important to her that she's passing on her knowledge to the next generation. I suppose, in a way, yeah. Her writings, the writings on the wall there, like for mm-hmm. her to die soon as well. And and there's something very, um, I guess, very generous and and very uh, warm for her to um, offer that to Vanessa. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's it's also very sad. I mean, yeah. exactly as you explained, like. You know, you can, you can take over here. Look what I've done and like what I've built, although I don't like it. You know, this mm-hmm. is what is for you. Yeah. And, and, and it's a very sad thing. Like that she's, yeah, I don't know. I just felt very sad for, yeah. for Joan that she was offering this. And Vanessa was saying, well, we'll see, you know, I'm yeah. not, not too sure if I want to do it or not. Yeah. And I think the sadness, is, as you say, Ray, I completely agree with you. The sadness really comes from her saying, it's not the life I would have wanted. But it's my life. I did yeah. whatever I needed to to get by mm. and was whatever the townspeople needed. And then the end of it is that the townspeople needed it, but they still put her to death. They still set her on fire and kill her, even though they know that, that they're the ones that created her being the way she is, you know? Um, yeah. So it is, it is a massively sad piece. One final thing that's in there that she offers Vanessa is the, um, the poetry of the dead, the book, um, that, is to be used in only a moment of dire circumstance. When you feel that you're at the point of death, when you feel you're at the point when everything's over, you can use this to get out of that situation. Now, she doesn't say get out of. I I was wondering about that because is there a point here where Joan could have used the poetry of the dead to protect herself from the townspeople, yet she's going to bequeath it to Vanessa instead? Is that something that could have happened there? Could she have saved herself in some way? Has she done it before? Has she used it? Is that why she's lasted this many years, this many centuries? Because she's used the poetry of the dead before on some attackers and not willing to use it now because she's passing on her life to Vanessa? Just a, a question there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I, um, I saw it as a a massive kind of get out of jail free card. <laughs> you know, this is thing yeah. here that you only in the most dire circumstances. So I assume that she has never used it before herself and that right. if she had used it towards the end when she was being, um, 
you, you know, captured by the mob, mm-hmm. uh, whether that would have helped at all. Because uh, apparently, I don't know. I'm assuming that the the price for what she has to to pay for, mm-hmm. if she does use it, would have been just so immense. So uh, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I see it, and, and kind of that poetry of the dead floating around now is is mm-hmm. pretty is a pretty juicy carrot. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I had to rewind and pause a few times on the scene where uh, Vanessa's packing up her stuff. She gives a glance at the book, as everybody can see. It's a very specific glance at the book. And then it cuts to her bag. The book is not inside the bag when she's there, but she does pick up the tarot cards and takes those. Whether the tarot does. cards being very important, because we saw them in the first episode of season one. These are uh, things that are very important to Vanessa. But she does seal up the house as she's going with her her emblem, with her uh, her uh, scorpion emblem in blood as she as she leaves her home effectively because this is the place that she owns now. She seals it up so nobody can enter, and uh, nobody of uh, nobody who's not exactly human can enter the home. I think so. I presume this is where she's going to be going back to later on in the season mm-hmm. to pick up the poetry of the dead book. Yeah, this is this is going to be the quest yeah. item that she needs to. It collect. could be, yeah, <laughs> because well, she will be yeah. she will be change forever i believe yeah. is yeah is what she says yeah i know it, it's um i i, I thought this was that this idea of offering her the new life associating that with the name you have this black box as well um where to begin with i didn't really think it was just going to be the deeds to the land i just thought i thought mm-hmm. it was going to be some kind of like cool dagger or something <laughs> like that but um now you have your own yeah uh, ring dagger to, but, uh, to kill exactly yeah. but ultimately um it's just her transferring the land into vanessa's <laughs> name um which i thought was kind of quite nice and yeah like yourself it was did she take the book yeah. or or didn't she but it's, um, it's keeping the land out of the hands of gregory i think it's, exactly it's so yeah. interested because that's the whole impetus of what he's been going after the whole thing that evelyn's been going after is is getting their hands on this land out from underneath joan and she dies gruesomely and leaves the land to somebody else that they that also has all of her powers to protect the land from them taking it away from them so i thought that was a really good touch i, I think as well it, it's you know, she goes, you'll bring spice to my last days because, you know, you're in danger and you bring danger here to my home. Mm, I'm um, old. Yeah. I just need uh, a spice, yeah. but you're, da- you're you in know, danger. Yeah. I, I felt your danger and, mm. and that's where I, I just think this is, she takes her in nonetheless. And in a sense, it's this last sacrifice of herself to pass that torch on to someone who can stop her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her sister is quite derogatory to her. She goes, look at how you speak. You're like a talking potato, um, which is kind of, yeah, okay. Um, That's harsh. It is pretty harsh. I have to say another, another thing we should really compliment um, Patty Lepone on is the, the way the language is written within the episode is the structure of her sentences and, and how the words are put together is very different from standard English. It's not, it's not old English. It's not, uh, it's not something you could learn other than from reading the script and saying the lines, if that makes sense. And it's, it, she yeah. just does such a good job of getting her point across without using exactly properly English sentences. I suppose it's something mm. that stands out with, within her pattern of speech that she's able to get across how angry or aggressive she is, even though she's not using exactly the, f- the way the words should sound, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. No. No. She she delivers the lines effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like it is like just the way she speaks. Um, yeah. But she conveys it very well. No. No. Um. I can't lord uh, Patty Lapone's uh, performance enough. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it was really good. Such a such a strong piece. Um. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting as we mentioned that she turns up later on. 
mm. um, down the track. Uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know whether we mentioned that in the recorded part of the podcast, but we will oh. be seeing the actress <laughs> back on the show, uh, which we mentioned uh, off off the left. I think we actually will see her back on uh, on Penny Dreadful City of Angels. I think I caught that she's been okay. confirmed for okay, an episode cool. or two of that show as well, because she's still a, a working actor. She's still somebody that's done some other great roles after her time on, uh, on Penny Dreadful as well. So excited to see her back in the future. Um, that's as much as we're going to talk about uh, our main points of, of this episode. Um, any notes that stood out to you for the episode? One that stood out to me, since I'm Irish, uh, one that did stand out to me was uh, as uh, Gregory is whipping up the Devonshire locals, he said uh, he said to them, um, you don't want to become properly like the Irish, digging your, out potatoes with your fingernails while your children die. And that's what makes them rally against the, uh, against well, the yeah. witch. This is around the time of the, of the great potato famine of Ireland, which killed, uh, well, lost around six million people in Ireland uh, at the time. So this idea of a landowner in Devon telling the people of, of, England, effectively, you don't want to become like the Irish because effectively the landowners are what turned the Irish that way, turned them into people that had to work the land rather than take care of their children. So, uh, so this idea that he's using that as a way of whipping up, uh, this evil sentiment within, uh, the locals is, uh, is just fascinating. I think it's a really, yeah. a really good placement of, of history, I suppose. Yeah. Stories that they may have heard about, uh, on, uh, from other people as well. So, uh, it's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, anything from, from you, Ray? Anything that, uh, that we haven't yeah. talked about in the episode? Uh, just a few little small, small things. I like the nods to the references. I think you touched upon it, Derek, of the previous seasons. Uh, so mm. the tarot cards we see now, the tarot cards, which were in season one, episode one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also nightshade. Um, so the cut wife shows Vanessa some nightshade in the, in yes. the forest there. Uh, and uh, viewers will remember that uh, Vanessa calls that out to Dorian Gray when they're in the in the gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I like this kind of tying it in um, with with the previous seasons. Yeah. Uh, one of the other ones, uh, less uh, a little bit more comical for me, was there's a there's a scene where the cut wife she kind of reproaches Vanessa and she whacks her on the head. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember that <laughs> <laughs> the expression. Yeah. Yeah, the expression on Eva Green's face, either they acted that so well or mm-hmm. she generally didn't realise how hard Patty LuPone was going to hit her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, it was just an absolute shock on her face. But I thought, oh, that was grand. That was really yeah. well done. Absolutely. <laughs> I really love that. There's a nice moment as well just after they've hunted the rabbit and she's skinned the rabbit and she's putting herbs uh, and she's seasoning it, putting it in the pot and mm-hmm. she's adding the salt and Vanessa goes... Not too much salt now. And as Vanessa walks away, the, the, basically the rest of the hand of salt that she's got, mm-hmm. tons of it, just, she just like slips it into the, the pot yeah. uh, and yeah. looks at it. I thought that was nice. It's like um, a nobody tells me what to do, whether it's yeah. about yeah. cooking or about how to live my life. Nobody tells me what to exactly. do. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Coming to your tarot cards. Yeah. I had to just, cause she picks the devil uh, immediately. Mm. So within tarot, uh, the devil represents being seduced by the material world or physical pleasures, which kind of doesn't really connect maybe too much with Vanessa, but also about living in fear, domination and bondage, which, um, so it's the fear of that that Lucifer may, um, ultimately win and, and bring her into his bondage, mm. I suppose. So I thought that was a nice consistency of, of, um, you know, the situation that Vanessa finds herself in. And, and then the court wife does 
call her uh, my little scorpion. Mm-hmm. Um, you're strong-willed and agile like a scorpion. So uh, you you really do get that sense again of Vanessa's will. Um, you know, we saw it in her possession um, uh, in Sir Malcolm's home earlier on. We, we've seen it um, in, in some respects with now encountering uh, these these past creatures, you know, or these creatures from her past in, in the form of the witches, her, her strength of will to try and uh, overcome them or to deal with them, I think is is really good. Um, and the only other thing I had was I thought Sir Geoffrey, he reminded me of... Um, the person who played Sir Francis Drake in Blackadder the Second. Okay. Um, no, he's not. But I, I did immediately think about. So all the way through this, until after the episode, I was like, "Wow, this is a real different kind of character <laughs> he's playing here." <laughs> he's such a nasty guy. The the actor is Ronan uh, Vibert, um, but it was Simon Jones who plays Sir Francis Drake right. in right. in Blackadder the Second. So <laughs> just a little. Sharing of my confusion with uh, our fellow darklings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, just one final point as well. Just on my mm-hmm. side, I want to, because uh, I have to do it, the, the music. Uh, towards the end, we get the familiar Penny Dreadful theme. Oh, yes. And I don't know about you guys, if you had that same feeling, but there was this kind of welcome uh, feeling of familiarity with the mm-hmm. theme. Uh, after yeah. I've gone through this whole journey of this episode, with only Vanessa being that the person from the whole series, but just transported to that other world uh, to hear that theme towards the end because we know this is the start of where her adventure begins, exactly. um, heading to London. Yeah. Brilliant, uh, brilliantly yeah. used. I loved it. Yeah, it's like as if now you can turn on season one, episode one and understand the whole mm. season far better from her perspective, what she's gone through to get to that start of season one. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of cool. Um, the only final note I have is, I suppose, the controversial figure of Oliver Cromwell. Um, in the, I love the fact that, um, Joan talks about his warts on his face, which he was very well known for, mm-hmm. um, which coming from a witch is kind of interesting because <laughs> the, the, the usual image is of witches having warts across their face. Yeah. But he leaves her the land and, and she just makes the reference, you know, she had no love of the royalists as they had none for us poor folk or women folk. Um, and I suppose Cromwell obviously didn't have any love for royalists either. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes, controversial figure, I suppose, <laughs> given the Irish connection. Exactly. Um, uh, and what he did in Ireland yes. as well. He was seen so, very differently in my history classes than he was in the UK. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, it's that real interesting point mm. about the perspective of history. Cause, mm. um, I suppose in, in England, at least it was about forming the supremacy of parliament. Mm-hmm. In Ireland, it's effectively about conquest because mm-hmm. at the time the, the crown was England, Ireland, um, and then there was Wales. Yeah. It wasn't Scotland just yet. So yeah, a, a troubled, long political past, I mm-hmm. suppose, within, um, Britain and Ireland. Yeah. But it, so it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting figure, if not controversial, <laughs> is Oliver Cromwell. I, I, I've got one last note to add just to mention. Um, because of the reveal of Joan Clayton's name at the end of the episode, there were a lot of questions over, was that name 
massively important. For my part, during the episode, it's explained why she doesn't reveal her name uh, till the end because she has adopted the name that's been given to her by the villagers. But I just liked one of the theories that I saw uh, about this right back from the time that, uh, that the show was on air. One of the theories was that the name was important because maybe she was Joan of Arc that she'd lived oh, from okay. the 1400s. Um, Joan of Arc, okay. famous figure, burnt at the stake. Um, I think twice, if the, if I if I remember correctly, she was she was put to f- set to fire uh, twice during her, during her life. Um, but but interesting that this idea that because uh, Joan Joan's name is Joan Joan Clayton that she could possibly be have lived lived on for another 400 years and now living in in England uh, with the land given to her by Oliver Cromwell. Uh, just think it's an intriguing theory. I don't think there's yeah. any any uh, anything meant uh, in the show by it, but just thought it was an intriguing. Well, well she's got the she's got the short hair she's as got well. The so as well. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. We'll be closing out there for our discussion on episode three of season two. Yes, I've got no further notes on episode three. This is a really good episode. Um, just full of so much layering mm-hmm. of, of these characters in terms of Vanessa, but also, uh, old, uh, the cut wife of Ballantry Moore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good episode to go back and do. Yeah. I'd probably out of. All the episodes so far, probably most likely that I'd recommend this to my partner, Eve, who um, hasn't watched the series, but since it's just so well contained and it's a one off, Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, not that, not that gory, just from, Mm. uh, uh, (laughs) just trying to, trying to backtrack. (laughs) Uh, no, it's just a really well told story and, and Mm -hmm. so many interesting characters. So I can't lord it enough. Excellent. Excellent. That's it. We'll take a little break and we'll be back with our discussion about. Penny Dreadful, Season 2, Episode 4, Evil Spirits in Heavenly Places. Here's a message from Ray's other podcast, Last Sons of Krypton. I am Connor from the House of El. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, uh, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed, and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. But just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away. Welcome back to the final episode in part three of our discussion about Penny Dreadful, season two, episode four, Evil Spirits in Heavenly Places. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other evil spirits, John. (laughs) And coming out of the wall, I am your third (laughs) co-host, Ray. (laughs) Yes, you have a great wallpaper complexion about you. (laughs) Thank uh, you, thank you. (laughs) 
That's so weird. I just kept thinking, you know, what if they stood in front of a white wall for a second? Would they match in with it or not? I'm not really too sure. <laughs> but uh, but no, of course they would. Yes, yeah. I'm sure they would pick that before. It's like, oh, shit, I've just walked past the white wall. Oh, oh they're going to see me. Um, anyway, <laughs> Well, their ankles were probably white to, to go in with the skirting board. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Let's get into our discussion about this episode, the final episode in part three of our Penny Dreadful discussion. Episode four of season two evil spirits in heavenly places this episode was directed by damon thomas and written by showrunner john logan john do you want to give us the summary of this episode sure having recounted her tale of the cut wife mr lyle tells them what he found in the artifacts from the british museum inspector russ continues his investigation into the killings at the mariners inn but finds the sole survivor has no recollection of what happened he also investigates the murder of a young couple whose baby has apparently been stolen. He notes some similarities with the earlier killings. At Putney's Waxworks, John Clare spends time with the blind Lavinia. A chance encounter is nothing of the sort for Ethan when he meets Hecate Poole, while Victor Frankenstein asks Vanessa to help him buy clothes for Lily, who he passes off as his distant cousin. Dorian Gray introduces his new friend to the latest fad sweeping London. Ah, yeah, she's my, my cousin, my second cousin, my, my fifth cousin, my kissing cousin. Can we just say that? <laughs> if yeah. you see me kissing my cousin, it's my distant cousin, Lily, right? <laughs> well. I, I do love Victor in this episode. I think he's, uh, I think he's very fumbly over his words. Very, yes. um, it kind of reminds you of the kind of Hugh Grant Britishness uh, that, that you have in those, in those uh, romantic comedies. <laughs> well, it's the conflict of being a second cousin, but with his precise measurements around uh, her, sh- her height, shape, hips and bosom mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, <laughs> for for the dress true um yeah that was kind of like ooh, okay <clears throat> yes he is a creep i do like the fact that he seems redder around the eyes as well so i wonder if he's upped his morphine count <laughs> certainly in anticipation of going dress shopping mm-hmm. um with with vanessa he probably should have taken angelique uh with him as well mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't know angelique yet No, that's true. He doesn't know Angelique yet. (laughs) Let's get into the discussion about the episode, guys. Uh, John, what's your big moment from this episode? Um, It's it's the puzzle of the Verbus Diablo. Uh, I just really like this kind of a, I don't know, an evil hellish jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how you write on a butterfly wing, but nonetheless, (laughs) he managed Brother Gregory in all his saintliness um, was able to write on a butterfly wing. It was a massive butterfly. It it was, but I was (laughs) just like, with what? Um, I just assumed he would destroy the wings. Um, But I I, I like this puzzle here, um, that the languages are changing from relic to relic. It's kind of, it really gives a sense of that um, sort of ancientness, you know, is it the kind of moving between um, Sumeric, Persian, Latin, Aramaic, uh, Greek, all these different things, um, and uh, the, the, this change in language. And so they're having to piece together this puzzle uh, to get the full text that is being given. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have Mr. Lyle kind of, you know, 
kind of saying this is the devil's autobiography. You know, there's a great moment with with him and and Malcolm sort of trying to make headway with the decoding of, of mm. this uh, Verbis Diablo were, you know, he, he talks about it about the devil's autobiography, but as Malcolm says, what's the point in him just simply recounting stuff that has happened mm. through this brother Gregory back in the day? Is it not also to be some kind of rallying call for his followers to, of, of being, um, something that is to come, presumably around, um, Vanessa? Uh, but I, I really like this, just this little investigation with, with these two. And um, I also thought as well, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier as well, uh, Ray, around, you know, whose side is Mr. Lyle on in, in terms of him showing up in, in Madame Carly's, um, kind of, comfortable abode um i'd say it'd be a little freaky going for sort of evening dinner around mm. there with the the, the <laughs> old uh the, the the bones all hanging on the walls but um i kind of liked here that whilst they are discussing dalliances um that he he is warning sir malcolm to proceed with caution mm-hmm. with evelyn pool and um, and at the same time, we, we just don't know to what extent some of the things, you know, he, he says, well, this is the devil's autobiography. You know, is it that he was trying to mislead Malcolm into thinking this is just sort of him recounting or the devil through brother Gregory recounting what he's done, how he came into being? Uh, whereas Malcolm maybe is clued in enough to kind of take it further and beyond that. So is he trying to, you know, uh, purposefully retard this, 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 um, solving of the puzzle mm-hmm. um and yet at the same time you know we do know uh, he is weak and he is under threat you know he is um in fear of his place in society if these pictures ever come to light in, in terms of his his wealth in terms of his marriage so you know that is a huge thing that is, is going to motivate him in in that sense but mm-hmm. i do like the fact that here he still uh does um provide uh, some kind of warning to Sir Malcolm about Evelyn Poole. Whether um, it's enough of a warning uh, is another thing. Um, I, I do like the fact that these dalliances, again, just bringing out the, the lighter side of, of uh, Mr. Lyle, who, whose first name is Ferdinand. Mm. Um, I think we find that out in episode two, don't we, or something, his actual first name. I've always ever known him as Mr. Lyle. I like that the dalliances are coming about by, you know, Samalcolm meeting, um, well, about him and Ethan in the British Museum. Uh, I I thought that was uh, quite nice. He goes, but dalliances can be overly Byzantine. Um, And he goes from Stoke-on-Trent to Budapest. So, yeah, Stoke-on-Trent is just like... um, an interesting uh, industrial town, shall we say, very different from Budapest. So I like that sort of contrast of, of a very industrial place like Stoke to Budapest, which is fairly romantic in, mm-hmm. in ter- and, you know, a sort of a, um, almost like Vienna in a sense, in terms of the architecture. And known for its steam baths and bathhouses. Exactly. So I, I liked his, it just... His lightness of touch, I think that's what he brings, mm. is Mr. Lyle, uh, this lightness of touch. Uh, but obviously, uh, Malcolm then does mention about his dalliance with um, Mrs. Poole, yes. which immediately causes Mr. Lyle to react uh, with his caution. Mm. Um, so again, I, I just feel it's, 
maybe he's a little gray here as Mr. Lyle. I'm not saying he's not um, probably trying to disrupt this group. Yeah. Uh, almost a bit like Fenton, but maybe more subtly. Um, but I think he certainly has a hot, soft spot. Um, I was going to say a hot spot then. Um, <laughs> he has a hot spot for Ethan and a soft yeah. spot for, for Sam Alkin. That's it. Um, but yeah. Um, and I, I like this. I, I think he's doing what, what's yeah. within his abilities. He's not ruining their way of putting together the puzzle, puzzle as such, but when it comes to the personal nature of the relationship between uh, Sir Malcolm and, and Evelyn Poole, he's just cautioning him. Like He doesn't give him any specific instructions to stay clear of her. He just says to be careful, you know, uh, the kind of advice that any friend would give, you know. Um, we didn't really point it out because there's so much to talk about in the series. We didn't really even point out the moment uh, earlier on in the season when um, Sir Malcolm met Evelyn Poole in the uh, perfumery mm. and she seems to have enchanted him with some form of a spell uh, that she has bound uh, Sir Malcolm to her. Yeah. So is anything of their relationship real at all or is it just the binding that uh, that she did in, back in the perfumery? He seems to feel that they're courting of sorts, but would Malcolm have ever gone out to court someone this soon after uh, after leaving his wife? We know that he's had his own dalliances with many women over time, but would he actually go out in court for a new relationship uh, knowing that he's still married, I suppose, is the uh, is the interesting part, if it hadn't been for that moment with Evelyn. Yeah, it's it's quite strange as well, because he does make mention how bound he is to the duty of marriage as well. He mm. mentions that to Evelyn Poole as well. So I don't know whether, yeah, he, he is obviously mesmerised by her, which mm-hmm. he speaks that verbus diablo in his ear and i don't know whether there was something in the perfume or that was just to get him close but yeah. um yeah the, he i don't know it's a very subtle must be a very subtle yeah. kind of influence because he still holds true to a lot of his beliefs as well yeah. mm-hmm. um, but he he does seem to be slowly kind of drawn towards her yeah. with the the warning that ferdinand Lyle gives to to sir malcolm um I, I kind of took it that he mentioned earlier in a previous episode that Skullduggery is not his. He's, he, he's not very, um, you know, he can't be deceptive mm-hmm. at yeah. all. Yeah. So I think yeah. he's just not doing – I think he can't do that. And and he obviously has concerns for Malcolm as well. Um, so that's come out. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. get – when they were looking at the relics, I was looking for anything – to show that he was trying to mislead Malcolm in any way, I couldn't really mm-hmm. see it at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, so I'd agree. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I think they're just trying to solve the puzzle together. Uh, listeners of TV podcast industries who've listened to us for a, a couple of years now might remember that one of our favourite uh, reality shows that we talk about on occasion on here is uh, is Survivor, um, <laughs> that, that we watch all the time. We've been watching it for it's what twenty seasons now. I think yeah, at something stage. like that. Um, and I love this aspect in the episode. It felt like they were doing a puzzle from Survivor. <laughs> it felt like they were putting together one of those big puzzles that's going to uh, keep them immune from uh, from the oncoming slaughter in the future. So <laughs> I just had that thing in my head where it was like, okay, everybody's working together. You know, Ethan's <laughs> going to take the Latin over there, and uh, Malcolm's going to take the um, going to take the uh, the Aramaic and the, or the Greek, and uh, and then we also have uh, Mr. Lyle using his uh, extra abilities and all the rest of the languages to get the other parts of it together, you know, and they're going to build this great puzzle uh, on the floor at the end of it. So it just, it just felt like an exciting moment, even though it's just reading text. <laughs> They've turned it into this great, exciting puzzle that they're going to build. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it's to what extent this puzzle maybe once it's revealed in terms of the full flow of the text, what's the impact of that going to be? It's mm-hmm. like, 
I can't imagine it's going to have Vanessa in ancient Aramaic or something <laughs> like that that suddenly pulled it. But it, you know, it, it's how this, this feeds into it. But I, I, I think it, it's really nice that, you know, both in this season and, and the last one, you, you have that ancient mythology mm-hmm. coming into it. And, and in this case, it, it's, it's not simply Egyptian. It, it's all the different languages because yeah you know, Lucifer, the devil is present in all these different cultures in one form or another. Yeah. Um, that he, he per- pervades through all these different cultures. Mm-hmm. It's not simply around the Egyptian one. So I, I really like that. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I think with Mr. Lyle, I just feel, um, I think you're right, Ray. I don't think he's got that malicious bone in his body to yeah. be overtly awful or, or traitorous to mm. this group. But he's, he, he is under threat and maybe, um, just maybe, as you said, when Madame Carly kind of just simply said, let them do their puzzle. It will bring them to me anyway. Mm -hmm. That simply put, he doesn't have such a key role in what is going Mm -hmm. to happen because they will, in some form or another, make their way to the coven's den. So. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting though. I, I just liked his cautioning. I thought, okay, yeah. he's yes. not, he's not evil. Yeah, absolutely. We That's still have faith awesome. in Mr. Lyle. Yeah. Yeah. That was very reaffirming, actually. That was, that was a big takeaway from it that, mm-hmm. you know, his allegiance still lies with them. Although, as you say, John, as well, he, he's, a, unfortunately, he's the sort of person that would probably be most likely to, to squeal if you squeezed a little. You know, he's got <laughs> yeah. some character to him, yeah. but um, but he, thankfully that doesn't happen. But he does, in a very subtle way, try and warn Malcolm. So that's yeah. very admirable. And I think just to segue Ray into your big moment, he is certainly um not one for physical violence. <laughs> um, he he is not particularly good at defending um himself, no. although. Dare I say, are any of them? But in particular, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Lyle does get knocked off his feet somewhat. Mm-hmm. He, he can jump backwards very quickly. That's his <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a superpower. Uh, Ray, with that, do you want to take us on to your, uh, your big moment for the episode? Yeah, look, I, I picked a big chunky one as well towards the end mm-hmm. here. It's the uh, attack on the team at, um, at the, the residence of Sir Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was really cool. It, it, for... For geeks out there as well, it reminded me a little bit of, of X2, um, Attack on, on X-Mansion, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. in the sense uh, that you see and you see the, the witches kind of just milling around, uh, the sense of danger coming, but then it's all on, and, uh, and, and you get such really good action here. Uh, as you mentioned, Lyle, he kind of gets swatted away without any, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> any um, resistance. I like uh, some Bene mm-hmm, tackling yeah. one of the witches just without Barreling any thought them, of all the way towards them. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as Ethan is is being overpowered as well at the time, you know, so yes. some Bene coming in yeah. to save him is just yeah. fantastic. I have to say though, I was saying when Ethan was investigating the wall, that's something that he might have seen. I was like, put down. Put down the pot of coffee that you just made and put it down while you're investigating something uh, sinister might be happening on the wall because you're going to get covered in burning coffee in a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that point as well. I mean, like he's, he is the, the lupus day. Yeah. So he mm-hmm. has the, those extra senses and out of anyone, he would be the one that would kind of, you know, figure something out. So that, yeah. that was a cool touch as well. Yeah. Well, I, in Callie's coven, um, they do say when um, Hecate 
has kind of failed in a task that he smelt me. There was something other than, mm. I, yeah, I, I like that he's stopping. Something's not quite right um, there at all. Um, I, I do, um, I mean, I was thinking of Predator, actually, Ray, as well, um, with <laughs> with them coming out of the, mm-hmm. the wallpaper um, with the pattern on um, that it was kind of like the Predator yeah, sort, yeah. Of, uh, sort of camouflaging itself within the jungle. Predator uh, in the mm-hmm. 1800s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and certainly they're, they're difficult to take down. You probably would need one of those massive Arnold Schwarzenegger repeater guns to, <laughs> to take these uh, critters down, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, because they're pretty hardy. Um, I mean, the only one really where you kind of got a sense maybe she might be in trouble was the one up in the bedroom with yeah. Vanessa when she starts speaking the the verbis Diablo, which just kind of seems to check her in, in mid flow. But ultimately, mm-hmm. I think the the damage is done there, mm-hmm. where um, she's got a lump of um, Vanessa's hair. Absolutely, uh, really felt that as well when yeah. she tugged on it. <laughs> um, and uh, is that going to be added to the? Dollar? Well, I believe I so. Yeah. Um, not. To have the spoilers, but I think yes, it 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 it's to add something of them uh, as well to the doll. So it's not only you know the the, the baby's heart to kind of animate it, yeah. and then you need something of the person. The mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. so it, it yeah. is kind of voodoo-y, uh for sure. Do you know? I have to say the direction of this scene from uh, from Damon Thomas was fantastic because the whole scene, the build up to it is so boring and so normal. You know, you, obviously there is the investigation, the puzzle that's going on inside, but as it pans around the rest of the house, you know, you have Ethan and Sembene downstairs, you know, making dessert, and then you have yeah. <laughs> you have uh, Vanessa up in her room brushing her hair, and you're, the yeah. tension that's there as you see a little bit of the wallpaper move slightly, and then it cuts to mm. another scene, and then you see a little bit of the wallpaper in that room move slightly, and then you suddenly realise the whole house is infested with these three witches, uh, all in each room, all preparing themselves to attack, and then it pounces almost unexpectedly as Ethan's looking at the wrong wall, the wall that you had previously mm, seen yeah. the witches on, the witch jumps out from behind him. I just think it's so well done. I, I hope this guy has done some uh, has done some horror work after doing this episode because uh, he's definitely got a talent for a proper jump scare, a proper jump scare, not a cat walking past in the background. A jump scare is when you think something's going to attack from one side and it actually attacks from another yeah. side. Great job. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, it, it was also how it was almost like one of those. Uh, remember the the. Um, the, the images that you had to look at forever and then all of a sudden a shark would pop, jump out at you and you had to yeah. kind of go cross-eyed. 3D images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the 3D images. And I've it was kind of like... 30 years yeah. to actually see one of those. It's still not <laughs> Exactly. It was like <laughs> Vanessa in, in the room and all of a sudden she's kind of squinting yeah. and <laughs> and the the person kind of just materializes from the, the wallpaper pattern. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what I thought was interesting about some of those as well? They weren't standing staring directly at who they were monitoring when that when that particular witch comes out of the wall, she's actually looking a completely different direction. She's standing sideways yeah. and not actually looking at Vanessa. I just thought it was interesting that they weren't just staring at their intended victim. They were placing themselves uh, in a spot on the wall. Maybe the pattern mm. didn't go the whole way around or something. <laughs> but, that's, well, that's true. I, I thought Simbene was going to take the... Um, the cake slicer at one point. Yeah. I, I thought one of them was going to die. I thought, I, 
I think my recollection here was a little fuzzy because I, I kind of did think one of them was going to die um, in, in some way. Um, and I, I kind of was thinking, wouldn't it be great? Just because you'd had the moment where Ethan had said buttercream tort was not something I would expect to associate with Simbene. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I thought if he had come sort of raging through and as he'd sort of rugby tackled her uh, away from Ethan, that he, you know, the cake slicer um, <laughs> was just kind of planted into the neck. Maybe. It would have you know, or sort of, I don't know, suffocator with buttercream torch by <laughs> kind of stuffing it up the nostrils and down the ears and into the mouth or something. Oh, that's how I want um, to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, best death ever. Uh, maybe chocolate cream torch for me, actually. I wouldn't mind a bit of chocolate. Um, but enough about cake death. <laughs> I actually thought that we were going to see um, some sort of like the reveal of some Bene, you know, like he's yeah. been very quiet for a long time. Absolutely. Um, so it did surprise me that he was overpowered shortly afterwards and, and the witches mm-hmm. were still very much uh, stronger than anyone else. Um, but like you, John, as well, I was, I, I thought one of them would have been offed some way in some yeah. horrific way, uh, yeah. but no, yeah. not, not to be. But exactly. yeah, I think it just shows how powerful uh, these creatures uh, are. And certainly Malcolm has got some more um, home improvements to do <laughs> after his front door uh, was possibly, yeah, properly ripped out um, mm. off its hinges yeah. um, by by the the fleeing night creatures. Absolutely, um, yeah. For sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm really to your point, I think this was the episode, I think they were setting it up for you, Ray, to be honest, with some Bene, um that conversation yep. that was going on the whole way through Ethan. Because mm. again, we've said Ethan through season one was the eyes of the of the viewer. He's the he's the one that's asking those questions that we would ask if we were in that situation. And he's just constantly yeah. niggling at some Bene going, So what exactly is it that you used to do when you were in your yeah. homeland? kind of thing. He goes, Oh, things like this. Um, you know, and and Ethan goes, Oh, I'll take care of these. And he goes, No, no, I'll take care of them. And Ethan goes, It'll help pay my way. And some Bene goes, it helps pay my way. <laughs> like yeah, he's kind of yeah. just completely cutting Ethan off, but not telling him anything about himself. So I do yeah. feel like John Logan likes to play with his audience a lot because we don't get a reveal of who he really is. We don't get a reveal mm. of his actual past. What we do get is just some kind of indication that himself and Sir Malcolm have a connection, some connection, and that Simbene is now living in his house in in London. And he's paying for paying for his keep, I suppose, by being mm. their butler in a yeah. way and taking care of the family. He feels a lot like Alfred the butler rather than uh, rather than a, a subservient butler, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, well, we do get finally he was a hunter, um, and but the rest of it's a secret, exactly, which is kind of interesting. Exactly. Yeah, I I want to uh, know more about Sim Benny. Oh yeah, we all do, but I think that's John Logan's trick that he's hiding it back and might might get it at the final episode of season three. We may learn something about Sim Benny that uh, is true to his past, <laughs> yeah. but I think that's something that John Logan loves to do. God damn it, John <laughs> Logan. Um, there's, there's also like a, a, a around this whole kind of scene as well. The um, Hecate gets. A, a one up yeah. from Ethan again, so it's kind of like a um, "I told you so" or you yeah. know, "I'm better than you" from their previous encounter, mm-hmm. where which was a really great scene of um, Ethan kind of doing the the Vanessa on on Hecate um, yeah. at the the very beginning of, of season one. He he gets her measure and he he susses her out, although he totally misfires. Mm-hmm. He believes that Hecate is an agent of his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously she's not, um, but he reveals, you know, he, he calls her out nevertheless. Um, so I loved it 
towards the end, we see Hecate in her in her witch form, and mm-hmm. she makes some sort of remark about her shoes, uh, and then Absolutely. off she runs. Yeah. How do you think are these comfortable shoes, Ethan? Yes, yeah. revealing instantly <laughs> that she is that she is the witch. I think that's a, a really good touch. You know what? I'm beginning to love this character of Hecate. I love her name mm. uh, first off. I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting. I love that she even criticizes her own name when she says it to Ethan earlier on. But I love the scene between herself and her mother Evelyn um so I'm guessing there's a there's kind of a, a conflict in my head and I'm not certain about it how they talk to each other these witches where you know we saw in the last episode with Joan where Joan was called the sister of Evelyn and in this episode we hear Hecate being called the daughter of Evelyn I'm not too sure whether any of those are actual familial bonds or whether they're to do with the coven bonds. I'm not, I'm not mm. definite about it, but I do love the scene when Evelyn's trying to sort of give out to Hecate and Hecate's going, look, you didn't tell me he was a lupus. You didn't tell me he'd be able to find out everything just by sniffing me for a second. So not my fault. And then Evelyn goes, do better next time. And all you get is just this cat-like hiss out of the yeah. bells from Hecate as if she's kind of going, you won't be in your position for long. I'll be in that position soon kind of thing. So, uh, so I'm really liking the interplay between, between these guys. As I said at the beginning of our discussions of season two, the idea of having the insight into our villains this season where you see them all interact with each other and hear about their plans before they go out and enact them adds so much to this uh, second season of the show that we didn't really get from the vampires in season one. Um, So I'm really enjoying seeing them and seeing some more powerful characters on screen this time. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, she's, she's a great character to, um, (laughs) to introduce as well. And yeah, for a while there at the beginning, when she kind of spies on Ethan, you wonder whether there is some, there's more interest rather mm-hmm. than actually just pursuing him as a target from Hecate, yeah. whether she does find him enticing or not. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see uh, yeah. with her character. Yeah, it kind of feels like maybe with that cat-like side of her that she has, maybe she just wants to toy with her food before uh, yeah. <laughs> before killing it. That's um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. kind of what, you, what you feel with her. Uh, I'm just going to take the, the final point for uh, episode four. Um, just because we haven't really talked a huge amount about uh, Mr. Putney and, uh, and John Clare, I suppose we'll call it now, uh, Caliban, um, and his discussions with, uh, with, uh, Mr. Putney's daughter. I think there's another great, uh, interesting discussion between, between him and, uh, the, the blind daughter of, uh, of Mr. Putney as she does investigate, you know, what color his eyes are. And, and we hear from John Clare that, uh, his eyes are actually yellow. Um, and I like the reaction of, of, uh, of the daughter just saying, well, that's really interesting and different. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like she, she does the, all of the work, uh, in, in, um, the Putney uh, wax museum. She does the work on the faces. So a nice tie in with the fact that every time she sees someone, she rubs their face to see what they really look like. She uses that ability that she has to create these, uh, lifelike, um, images of, of people for, uh, for the waxwork. Um, but there is a macabre side of, of this museum. You know, we, we knew that from the beginning that he's setting up, um, the, uh, house of horrors almost, uh, within his museum to compete with, uh, with Madame Tussauds. But what we hear in here is there's a discussion between him and his wife, um, which is something that is, I'm sure, going to be fleshed out as the episodes go on, but definitely want to point out here where he says he's keeping some of his attractions in the cellar all the time because they don't need the light. They're all freaks. And suddenly you start to get a little bit of worry for uh, for what might happen to John Clare. Will he get bashed over the head and stuck in a cage to be uh, viewed by the paying public as they come in and out of this area in the future? Uh, what's going to happen? So I'm, I'm, I'm now in, even more intrigued with their kind of storyline and what's going on there yeah so you're suggesting that there's actually real life people down 
Yes, I am. Yeah, I, I, I think. Okay. I think it was from his wife kind of going, um, you're going to keep them down the cellar all the time. And he says, yeah, yeah, they're just freaks. They don't need the light. So yeah, nasty. I don't think he's talking about waxworks. I think he's talking about actual yeah. uh, okay. people that he's considering as nasty. freaks. Nasty. I must have missed that. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. So Mr. Putney is not quite... Um, he's not in the same league as Vincent from the Grand Guignol. No. Um, he's a little dodgier. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, unfortunately, um, John Player may have put his trust in uh, the wrong person here. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I, that's probably going to come back and, and bite him. I, I think it, probably in two ways. Not only maybe directly with um, Oliver Putney uh, and how he he's, he he will treat him. But it's also, you know, speaking of cats, whilst the cat's away, that the mice will play. Um, you know, I, I kind of like that Victor back in, um, his, his laboratory, you know, he, he's still working, uh, I suppose effectively on Lily. There, the, you know, mm-hmm. there is an undercutting of, of Caliban, um, slash John Claire here, yeah. uh, from Victor, uh, to, to Lily. Um, she doesn't feel, um, you know, comfortable, uh, with, with Caliban in the same way maybe that she feels comfortable with, with Victor in, at this moment, even though, you know, Lily is, has been reanimated, brought back to life yeah. for Caliban. So, um, I, I find this, uh, is probably not gonna end, um, too well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, one of the things that's kind of popping into my mind as, as we talk through these episodes, the request, or the demand, I suppose, that Caliban made of his creator was to create someone like him who would have to go through and experience life with him, uh, someone that could be a partner because he felt like he couldn't find a partner in the future. Uh, since that time, he has met Vanessa Ives, someone who's had at least an interaction which was kind and pleasant, and she didn't treat him differently to anybody else. And he's also met the daughter of Mr. Putney, who seems to absolutely accept what he's like. She knows what he looks like from her fingers the first time they met, and now knows there's something even more unusual with him with the eyes. So he's met two other, I suppose, potential uh, people that he could have uh, some serious connection with, after making the request of Victor to create someone that would that would be able to look upon him, so I'm just wondering if there's going to be a point where he kind of goes, mm, actually, maybe I maybe I was a bit rash thinking that nobody would want to be around me. I found a few other people. You go on ahead, Victor, or will or do you think it will be as serious because Victor is uh, is almost creating Lily in for himself in a way. I, th- I think yeah. it could be a bit of column A, column B, um, but I, I think it's not to underestimate. Um, Lily in saying no here. Um, I, I think, um, I think that, that conversation at, with the dress, um, where she's in the corset and oh, in yes. the high heels and she's, she's saying corsets, they are cruel and they're restrictive and they're only for men. It, it's for men's eyes that they're, they're worn. Um, and, and Victor kind of, it's almost like he is adding another type of spark, one that's not electrical but it, it's that he's giving her the spark of of truly understanding men of that time mm-hmm. um, and how they view women in that he says you know men keep women corseted in reality so that they don't take over the world mm-hmm. um, and I think this is very much a spark of, of how Lily comes to view herself um, you know she wants to be uh, she wants that corset off um, she wants the to free herself, relieve herself of, of this dependency around men, and maybe she sees Caliban as part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think what really does sabotage John Clare's relationships with women 
is his own perception of himself as well. He's very down on on like his appearance, and um, and he still views himself as an outsider. Um, I mean, the, the the fact that he is drawn to the waxworks as well, somewhere that mm. he can be hidden away to do the stuff, just to work away. Um, yeah. He doesn't give himself much value, and and I think that's what harms his relationships um, with, say, Lavinia. I mean, when when they did meet up as well, he, he's very reluctant to let. Um, her touch his face, and he's very yeah. reluctant to describe his eyes. Um, so the relationship that he'd have with Lily seems a lot more appealing because she's one of his kind. He doesn't have yes. to feel um, like he's an outsider in any sense. Yeah. Um, just going back a few points as well, John, to what you mentioned. If we go back to like, yeah, Putney's Waxworks and mm. uh, with Lavinia and the and the, um, the conversation that John Clare has with, I thought that was a, a very um, Really, very good interaction between the two. Um, Lavinia talks about actually the reluctance of, of bringing waxworks into the world um, for you know the massacres and 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 the mm. the, the chamber yep. of horrors. How yep. she finds it, she feels so sorry for those figures because they come into the world kind of like screaming and and in horror. And yeah. you can kind of see that kind of parallel with the creation of, of John Clare. Um, so I like that little touch over there as well. Um, yeah. John, you were mentioning about Vincent Brand and the Putneys. Um, when we're introduced to the Waxworks Museum, I got that sense that, okay, this is another Vincent Brand at first because the, the yeah. actor himself is very affable. He looks very affable and he yeah. does a good job. As, as the series goes on of actually turning and being a little bit more um, malevolent. Um, yeah. So I found um, that parallel as well with Vincent Brand and, and the Guggenhall Theatre coupled against uh, the Putney's Waxworks, wax quite interesting too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you're hoping, you know, that by Caliban meeting someone like Vincent, he is open to meeting future people like that mm. as well. So has he yes. trusted the wrong person here? And as, as we go on, we're, we're seeing that he may have trusted the wrong person. Uh, John, you, you recognize the actor from, from some other stuff as well before he was in uh, comedy shows before was, uh... yeah, he was in some, he was in comedy shows with Rowan Atkinson. I think it's called the thin blue line, mm. um, which uh, I didn't really watch, but he was also, I suppose, most well known for being in four weddings and a funeral. That's um, he, he, he was, Bernard. That's exactly. he, he was the guy who didn't really have sex and then got a lot of sex very yes. quickly um, <laughs> with a really randy sort of posh girl yes. um, who also didn't have a lot of sex but was sex mad. Yes, um, oh, it. Bernard. <laughs> there you go. I knew, I knew I recognized him from, from yeah, understanding. That's that. probably his, his most well known. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he, a staple of, I think, TV in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was it. That was my kind of big moment from the episode about the, about the Putneys. Um, a couple of notes, I suppose, uh, about the episode, anything that we may not have talked about but so far. I do want to mention Dorian Gray and Angelique, uh, in this episode again. Um, I, I love their interplay as they go off to the brand new fad sweeping London. <laughs> I love the description of it. It almost sounds like they're going to a leather bondage bar. I'm trying to think of the term. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like they're going to some kind of leather bondage bar and it turns out to be table tennis. Yeah. So what do we do here? Do we hit the ball? 
one way and then you hit back <laughs> towards me kind of thing. But that's a kind of uh, indicative of how they speak to each other because both of them are patting that ball back and forth uh, with their with their discussions. That little patter between the two of them is still there. You know, we have that wonderful moment between the two of them where Angelique says, I'm very provocative. And, and Dorian says, well, provocation is like food and drink to me, which it absolutely is. This is exactly his character. He'd be the kind of person that would love to walk around with anybody as long as everybody around has their eyes on that person. You know, I love of this yeah. this way you know and even during that that scene in the in the room uh, where they're all playing table tennis everybody around them starts to look towards them as they kiss because there's something different about this couple something different from the old stuffy men who are paying for Absolutely. this opportunity to play table tennis in london they look around as these two kisses it, it's just such a, a a well put together scene so i really really like the interaction between these two i kind of like the reference as well from angelique about the electrical lighting you know what does that do to a woman's complexion Action. Mm-hmm. You know, even with um, Evelyn Poole, she she has talked about, you know, I'm a bit of a Luddite. I, I would throw the wheels into the river. Um, mm-hmm. And th- this idea of technology and um, what it might do, this, you know, that, that it's it's seen with suspicion mm-hmm. that it, it may cause some something bad to you uh for angelique it's the complexion of of her face but you know it's almost a bit like with mobile phones when the the radio waves were going to you know cook your brain and stuff like that so (laughs) um i i kind of thought that was just a nice little reference here in this age of rapid change Mm -hmm. yeah i just had a little note as well nothing too big but um just when you think respect for Miss Ives can't get any higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's again done one other thing that makes me just love her so much more. Buttercream tort for breakfast. She has dessert for <laughs> yeah, breakfast. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> All the time. I just love those little... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, what? No, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, I, I do love that little touch of, of how caring Sabene is for her as well when he's cleaning off her place and her place has more food than everybody else and he's instantly worried about her. He's like, oh, well, yes. she really does need to eat more. And later on, we find out she has dessert for breakfast. So she also needs to eat better as well. Yes, <laughs> she lovely. does. Uh, John, any anything of note for the episode that you haven't talked about yet? Um, no, it was just again. I think with the Byzantine uh, dalliances, it's you know this is a kind of a bit of a connotation of of being Byzantine, um, and it, it, it's it's really coming not from the time period itself, uh, but there's a negative connotation around it, uh, mm. or it's a, it's, it's a connotation of one of maybe a freer time, but it, it, it got this negative connotation from sort of later ages, like during the Renaissance right. and, and so on. Uh, but there's the idea that, um, yeah, it was maybe a little free and easy <laughs> okay. to do things that, Probably wouldn't have been acceptable yeah. then. So yes. yeah, that it, it was fairly uh, hedonistic, um, free and easy, mm-hmm. and, and you know, for the, the stiff upper Victorians, that um, it was both something to recoil from, but also that they engaged in of with course. their brothels and, and the like. Yeah. So um, I, I like again that Mister Lyle, our general foppish, suavish uh, kind of person, who kind of likes both you know he wants the money of the social standing mm-hmm. but enjoys uh sort of investigating and researching the these um 
Byzantine ways, I suppose, yeah. uh, is one to bring up these these dalliances. Yeah. yeah, we didn't actually mention that either, did we? That uh, that just that call from Evelyn Poole and why she's able to manipulate Mister Lyle is because all of the money that's been allowing him to pursue this lifestyle that he has is his wife's money. So oh, right. if yes. she uh, if she loses her standing, I'm sure she knows about everything that's going on with uh, Mr. Lyle, but if she loses her standing because the world knows about what's going on, he will lose the money and therefore he will just be an old man in the street with a dyed wig. Um, so, yeah. so it is, it's, it's very connected to the money that is being given to him, lets him live this life. And the other interesting thing, it, it comes to the, the vicar actually from the previous, um, episode. So, you know, we've talked about, um, how the arts and the sciences are allowed, um, I suppose what would normally have been conceived as a misfit being able to express themselves and flamboyantly or, mm. or be, well, it, He's that way because of the, you know, he, he's so knowledgeable in researching things like ancient Egypt or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, this, these ideas of expression, being able to express themselves in a way that society feels is acceptable or normal, even though it's to, um, in a sense, cover something up. Whereas what I, what I felt with the, the, the vicar was that in a sense, the church is also part of that at this time mm. where people could go into the church, but it, but it's one of suppressing who they are. It's right. not getting up on stage to artistically be, um, you know, wild and gay or something like that. Or, mm-hmm. and for regular people in society to say, Oh, but that's what is required from an artist yeah. or an actor or the same way for someone researching these, these kind of things. And, um, you know, the church is, is also that zone where people uh, w- w- would go to, mm-hmm. but it's one of um, preaching a creed that maybe is against what is that they should be yeah. expressing. So one of, of repression yeah. rather than expression. So yeah. uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's it for our discussion on episode four of Penny Dreadful season two. And let's close out our part three discussion with just a quick chat about what your thoughts have been on the first half or first part of this 10 episode season. Ray, as our guest, what do you think of season two of Penny Dreadful so far? Yeah, really, really enjoying it. Um, I remember first watching season two. I found it hard to, to beat season one. Um, mm-hmm. and it just took a little while to adjust to the new villains because it was so well done in season one with the vampires and the creatures. Uh, so to kind of get your headspace into this other world. But as the, I mean, the, the four episodes that we've covered as, as we go through it, you get more and more invested. So I'm actually, I'm really enjoying it. It's very strong. Um, as we mentioned, uh, the writing, I mean, John Logan's written, most of them so far and and mm-hmm. they they're just really well written um he he really knows what he wants to do where he wants to take them all yeah. uh, so and, and that's coming through with it uh and he spends time with the more secondary characters which i find mm-hmm. very good it's all about the details and he, and he he gives us those details so uh, i found it so far very uh, very compelling um and yeah, it's more of a focus on on Miss Ives now, um, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But I think they're playing to their strengths with Vanessa mm-hmm. uh, with um, Eva Green. Sorry, so um, yeah, uh, it's really good. Highly recommended at the moment. Yeah, excellent, excellent. John, what's your thoughts on Penny Dreadful season two so far? Yeah, I mean, 
uh, for me, it's five creepy dollhouse tea parties uh, out of five, but with a nice comforting wedge of buttercream tort. Um, <laughs> I think you need that comforting tort of mm. Mr. Lyle. Um, I, I think it's equal to season one um, for sure. Um, I, I love how they've... As you say, Ray, they've played to their strengths, but mixed it up in a sense of introducing the, the witches and giving them a story. So not necessarily keeping them fully, uh, in, in, in the shadows, even though I suppose things like, um, what happens to the kidnapped baby maybe is something that could have been kept in the shadows. But I, I think it, um, I think, it, I think it plays to the fact that the show is, is compelling. It's uncompromising. It's willing to delve into this darkness of, of um, supernatural, of mythology, of folklore, of, you know, big things like good versus evil and how they're not quite as polarized as you may think um so i really enjoyed this uh, again eva green just fantastic um helen mcquarrie just is totally great as well mm. as uh, evelyn Poole uh, or madame carly and patty lapone uh was just awesome as um the 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 cult wife of ballantry moore mm-hmm. and i i think it's just been a really solid start and I, I i um you know i i'm just hoping it will keep going that way to yeah. be honest yeah. um i also like with ethan that they're starting to explore uh his his lupus uh origins as well and i'm glad that they seem to have a more competent detective on the case with inspector rusk Mm -hmm. as well on the trailer i reckon he will be a harder nut to crack uh, than the previous one i'm hoping uh, we're gonna get more of him these first four episodes have had a scene in three of them i think um just a very small scene talking about this character having this character kind of in the investigation but it seems to end just as he comes to a realization about something and then we're going on to the next episode. We still haven't seen what any of those realizations are. So I'm hoping that we're going to get a good, maybe half an episode of him investigating and tying things together in the future. But, um, but for me, this first half of season two, a great setup for the season. The season's a little bit longer. It's got 10 episodes in it. Um, last season was only eight. Um, but I kind of love the opening of the season where we have that conversation between Ethan and uh, Vanessa, where Ethan finally is about to tell someone, uh, about his lycanthropy. Uh, he's finally going to unburden himself and say, there are things inside me, demons inside me that you need to know about as well, Vanessa. And she's like, hold that, se- hold that thought a second. Here come <laughs> the real demons about yeah. to take us off here. You know, uh, he's about to leave and we get the setup of that. Why he's going to stay uh, is that last time it was just a battle. This time it's the war. So uh, what a great way to kind of take your jumping off point from season one, bring it into season two and make it even more interesting, I suppose, even more exciting. And the the characters and actors that are in the season have been fantastic so far with, as you guys mentioned, great writing from John Logan once again. So, uh, yeah, really excited to get into the second part of this season. This is the last of our four episode podcasts that we've been doing for uh, Penny Dreadful so far. We're going to be moving on to three episodes for each of the last parts. I say that we've still got another um, 18 episodes, I think, left to go of our Penny Dreadful <laughs> uh, coverage, but there'll be three episodes per part from now on going up to the uh, release of Penny Dreadful City of Angels on April 26th. I want to say a huge, huge thank you once again to Ray for joining us for this podcast. Great to have you with us, man. No worries. It's it's always a pleasure. Uh, this, this series is just so fun to talk about and, and so fun yeah. to chat with you guys. Excellent. And you've got the 
uh, unenviable uh, position of going to bed now directly after this because it's somewhere around half past midnight uh, over in Australia at the moment. So uh, sorry that we've, well, hopefully we don't keep you up with nasty nightmares of the petting <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just going to think of that doll with the goggly eyes and the mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? It's like the cat meme. Oh, what's that? Exactly. Ray, where can people find you, the podcast, and, and where can we find you online? Sure. Um, uh, check us out on um, Facebook or Twitter. Uh, the handle's pretty easy to remember. It's uh, on Twitter. It's at ITK Moon Knight. This is for the Into the Night Moon Knight podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITK Moon Knight. We also have a group there as well, but um, just, just send in a request. We're, we're always happy to, to hear from fellow loonies. Uh, other podcasts as well, Last Sons of Krypton, Superman podcast, um, LSK podcast. So uh, Twitter handle, LSK podcast, or facebook.com slash LSK podcast. Excellent, excellent. Hopefully you'll be joining us in future, Ray, uh, for some yeah, more episodes absolutely. on Penny Dreadful. If our fellow Penny Faithful want to keep following the things that we're covering, you can also find us on uh, tvpodcastindustries.com where you can subscribe to the podcast and anything we're discussing uh, as we're going up to um, Penny Dreadful. We're yes. also discussing loads of other stuff. We've got a uh, Picard still going on at the moment. I think we may have finished that uh, as you're listening on the main feed now. We're uh, releasing these episodes after we've finished our Star Trek Picard coverage. Yes, I, I somehow the, the, the cold vacuum of space seems weirdly uh, more appealing than Victorian London uh, <laughs> with dolls yeah. uh, and crazy witches for some reason. Yes. Excellent. excellent. And if you want to get any thoughts in about any of the episodes of Penny Dreadful, give us a penny for your thoughts. Uh, email us to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com with any kind of discussion points or anything that you remember from uh, your time watching Penny Dreadful. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for joining us for our discussions about Penny Dreadful. We hope you stay subscribed to the podcast. And if you enjoy what you hear, please share it with your friends. Sharing the podcast is sharing the love. And we all need some comforting love after uh, seeing these witches and their coven. <laughs> we'll be back next time with part four of our discussion of Penny Dreadful, season two, episodes five through to seven. Uh, as always, fellow Darklings, it has been a pleasure speaking to you in the Verbis Diablo. Uh, I like it, John. Always remember, keep watching, keep listening, and for this podcast, keep screaming. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and from this massive baby heart of mine, I want to say thank you for listening, and, and good, good night. <laughs> thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>